How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello. Who <laughs> <laughs> in your Delilah voice? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I was honestly thinking about how to do it as like John Waters, like a, if 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 this episode was directed by John. Oh, Waters, you got to do it in the in the Mister Ray voice. Be like, I was thinking of how everybody talks at a John Waters movie, where it's just like, "Wow, welcome <laughs> to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to." We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. <laughs> that was very good, Gary. <laughs> I am uh, co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm Davis, Mr. Todd A. Davis. I'm a writer and a comedian and... Uh... I'd like to be famous. And like Gary said, we do all the research so that you don't have to. There's no need to know about presidents, wars, numbers, or science. Just listen to us and you'll learn. Me and my little friends over here will be repeating rhymes, asking flippant questions, and talking in our nagging baby voices. You can just sit there and look out into the air. No need to badger us for our look at the third film in the career of John Waters in our series called divine filth you know what really sells that todd is that you are our, our listeners don't know this but you're in full divine drag right now <laughs> that's why we have to start a patreon <laughs> so we can get the video be, out I'll, there i'll be honest when i when i logged into Streamyard and saw myself i thought oh well hello <laughs> and i was like oh that's oh that's me, oh, that's me. it was like look look at this drag queen with all this star trek stuff around him <laughs> sure hello. there are other movie podcasts you could listen to but if you want to feed those ham folds and not feed your own daughter then that's fine <laughs> <laughs> what if i maybe i could do the whole podcast oh please now. don't <laughs> <laughs> It's gonna this, get old fast. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to make we're gonna have to adjust the levels. Yeah, on, we're on gonna have to turn your mic before. down a little bit. Uh, it's gonna be distorting, maxing out. You know. <laughs> well, uh, so Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos are the last movie we talked about. You know, that was always going to be kind of a tough act to follow for John Waters. Uh, that film was, it was really like lightning in a bottle. It's one of those movies that came out at in just the right place at just the right time, a movie that could not exist have existed and probably would not have succeeded at any other point in history except at the exact moment that it did. So trying to replicate that's going to kind of be a fool's errand, you know? 
And John Waters knew that. He knew that with his next film, he needed to grow a little bit to do something a little bit different. He couldn't just try to one up the shit eating scene in Pink Flamingos because he didn't want to like <laughs> he didn't want to paint himself into a corner where every film that he made, people would wonder how he was going to top his last one in terms of like just sheer, you know, grossness. Uh, he didn't want to spend his entire career making movies about people eating poop he's like if i if i had tried to do that in my next movie i'd still be making movies about like people eating colostomy bags you know so it's it's not something which john waters very forward thinking very business minded like he did he knew that he could get pigeonholed into doing a specific type of movie and he actively worked to not do that uh i mean and now now to be, to be fair if you haven't had a southern fried colostomy bag, <laughs> you need to journey to some of these foodie towns because they are doing some wonderful things. <laughs> you, uh, it's a good thing you didn't exist back then because that 100% sounds like something Divine would have eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Just deep fried colostomy bag. Mm, yeah. Covered in sausage gravy. Like with a stick of butter just <laughs> in there. Well, instead of trying to outgross pink flamingos, John Waters would take a slightly different approach. Uh, he would later explain this saying, all my humor is based on nervous reactions to anxiety provoking situations. So he wanted the ideals rather than the actions of his next film to be horrifying. And that film, the film that he's referring to there, his next film is of course the second in Waters so-called trash trilogy. The movie we're talking about today is I was about to say pink flamingos. It is not pink flamingos, but no, we're going to talk for pink flamingos for another two and a half hours, guys. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> we're doing a three-parter on pink flamingos. <laughs> we are talking about female trouble. The star of pink flamingos is here again. It's divine. She's got balls and she's got female trouble. Here she is, divine as Dawn Davenport, a feisty young high school girl. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. I'll never wear those ugly shoes. I told you not to Yes, she had a lot of problems. And she found herself in big female trouble. Watch as divine performs the most perverse acts ever brought to the screen. You'll follow Divine's life of sex and crime from its tawdry beginning to its very end. Share the tears and laughter with Divine, Edith Massey as Aunt Ida, and the Pink Flamingos Gang, a new high in low taste. John Waters' Female Trouble. She had a lot of problems. I'm afraid I'm going to have to be the one to break the news to you, listeners. I'm throwing out our spoiler warning and starting podcast proceedings. I don't want to seem overly bitter, but I'd appreciate it if you watched the movie before listening to our nagging baby voices. Well, getting financing for Female Trouble, it could have actually been very easy for Waters because he had an offer. Uh, after Pink Flamingos came out, he got an offer from none other than Andy Warhol himself. Uh, Andy Warhol wanted to finance whatever film Waters was going to follow up Pink Flamingos with. He's like, I'll do it, I'll pay for it. And Waters, in my opinion, wisely turned him down because even though his film could have been fully paid for and probably could have got a decent budget, I mean, probably about the same as what he ended up getting, it would have become known as Andy Warhol's Female Trouble. You know, it wouldn't have, it would have ceased to be a John Waters movie. That's kind of what happened with Andy Warhol stuff. Like if you watch uh, Flesh for Frankenstein, it says Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein. Andy Warhol didn't direct that movie. Paul Morrissey did. But it will always be known as Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein because of his involvement with it. So John Waters wanted to 
avoid that because he wanted this to be a John Waters movie. So he turned him down. And instead, the film was paid for using leftover earnings from Pink Flamingos, along with some money that was borrowed from an independently wealthy friend. And then all in all, Waters was able to scrape together a budget of about $26,000 for his next film. So he's gone from, uh, I think, $2,000 on Mondo Trasho, 5000 on Multiple Maniacs, ten to 12000 on Pink Flamingos, and now... We're up to twenty six thousand, so it's, we're gradually like doubling the budget with every one of these films. It seems like, yeah, he doubled the budget, but it still wasn't enough for some Cha Cha Hills. Mm-hmm. No, that, that was the Cha Cha <laughs> Hills were not in the budget. Uh, and as for the inspiration for his script, Waters, if you watch this, uh, it's very clear that he's taking inspiration from some of the exploitation films that he had watched as a youth. I think there's a lot of Russ Meyer influence here, uh, but part of his inspiration came from a very unlikely source. A guy named Tex Watson, who was a uh, central member of the Manson family. We've mentioned, I think, a couple of times in the last couple of episodes, we, we've mentioned Waters' obsession with the Manson trial. Remember in Multiple Maniacs, uh, there, there's this whole like subplot where Divine is trying to trick David Lockery's character into thinking that he killed Sharon Tate. You know, so that, yeah. that was the first kind of Manson uh, reference in a John Waters movie. And as you may recall, after Maniacs was released, Waters and David Lockery drove across the country from Baltimore to Los Angeles to attend the premiere of Multiple Maniacs there. But then Waters, the day after the premiere, he started attending the Manson trial in person. And he's written about it pretty extensively, about you know going to the, the big Manson trial, several Manson trials, uh, in fact. And this wasn't like some sort of weird, just morbid curiosity with Waters. He was genuinely fascinated by the whole Manson family situation. When he read about them in the newspaper, this was like while he was making Multiple Maniacs when the the news kind of first broke, he kind of saw a lot of himself in these kids. These kids who were in Manson's cult, they all came from very similar backgrounds as Waters did. And he couldn't help but wonder, like, how did these kids get so turned around that they would kill someone in real life? You know, Waters and his friends were, they were similarly railing against the peace and love movement. Uh, I mean, they were, they had a lot of the similar ideals as the Manson family. They were almost like a mirror image of the Manson family. They were anti-authority, anti-hippie, peace and love. Uh, They took a lot of LSD. Uh, But Mm -hmm. what kind of fascinated him was the idea or, or the question of what led him and his group of friends who were so similar in one direction where they would use comedy as their preferred form of attack well, this other group of kids, somehow their lives moved in a direction where they become brainwashed by a madman into thinking that murdering people is the answer. I, the charisma, I, I, you know, it, you know, coming from a and d perspective, you know, you can pull up Instagram and see like, oh, when the charisma is 20, 20, 22, 25, and people are just dancing like crazy and stuff like that. But I mean, that's I don't kind understand of what that it reference was. at all. Exactly. And that's why you need to play Dungeons and Dragons, Justin. <laughs> But like, you know, when you get these charismatic people, you know, like, you know, Charles Manson, like a lot of politicians, like a lot of, you know, other figures, it's easy to get sucked into the rhetoric and just and before you know it, you're doing all kinds of crazy things. Being fed a lot of acid has a lot to do with it, too. Yeah, yeah, that's a little (laughs) icing on the cake there for sure. Uh, John Waters, just for the record, too, I thought was interesting. This was not just about the Mansons, like as far as like why he was. I, I was curious after even the last one where, you know, we're, we're seeing these references that he 
he did the Patty Hearst trial. He went mm-hmm. to like, he listed a bunch of different trials. He was super into it. He was fascinated. He says with the theater of trial, he was basically into true crime before it was a thing. It sounds like, yeah. but yeah. he says if he hadn't been uh, a director, he would have been a defense attorney yeah. to this day. He still supposedly visits people in prison. And uh, he says he can't do trials as much, maybe because of who he is. People know who he is. So it becomes a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. But he says he still sometimes regrets that he never did the attorney thing. Uh, and now not simple things, mind you, he, he is John Waters. So he's thinking he wants to be like the defense attorney over like the OJ trial right. or something. <laughs> He wants like big extravagance, of course, or 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 Tex Watson, or Tex Watson. Yeah, I mean, as we were writing this episode, Lan- Leslie Van uh, Houten is that how you say her name? Leslie Van Houten uh, from the Charles Manson family was granted parole, and John Waters has been friends with her for decades. They became friends in the in the like late seventies, I think, and he has been a uh, pretty uh, adamant champion. For her, for her parole for a very long time, uh, he's written about it extensively. Uh, I mean, there's a whole chapter in his book Role Models about about her and about why he thinks she should be pardoned. And it was just so weird that while we were working on this episode and I was reading all of that, she was finally pardoned and let out of prison after fifty some odd years. I think it's just weird the way those things work sometimes. But uh, so you, you mentioned Patty Hearst, Gary. Patty Hearst and John Waters became friends as well, and she's actually going to pop up in a couple of his movies down the line uh, as a cast member. Nice. Yeah, I think her first one is she might be in Polyester. It might not be to like Crybaby, so it might not be on one of the ones we're we're talking about. I can't remember. She off the top she of my is head. in Crybaby, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. I I feel like I watched Crybaby not too long ago, and I feel like I remember. I remember seeing her in the cast. Yeah. So, okay, back to Tex Tex Watson. So, it, I don't know if I need to explain who Tex Watson is. Uh, is a pretty famous figure in pop culture, but just for the uninitiated who might not know who he is, Charles Tex Watson was essentially the top lieutenant for Charles Manson. Uh, he had been a star student and a captain of his football team in high school back in Texas, hence the name Tex Watson. Uh, but after college, he made his way to Los Angeles looking for peace and love, and instead he found Charles Manson, who uh, over the course missed of it, missed it by that much, just barely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Manson, over the course of 10 LSD drenched months, transformed Tex into a mindless killer. And Tex would uh, end up, he'd actually be the ringleader in the Tate LaBianca murders over and over the course of two nights in August of 1969, he would personally stab or shoot all nine victims of those murders. So, you know, not a great dude. He, he He's a guy who says something about he's the devil and he's here to do devil shit. I'm here to do some devil shit. Yeah, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in <laughs> Hollywood, he's the character that Austin Butler plays uh, in that movie, who I believe, if I remember right, spoiler alert, I guess, for that movie. I, everyone's seen that movie. Brad Pitt throws a can of dog food at his face. Is he the one who gets a dog food to the face? I think so. I think so. so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's Tex Watson. I met you before sometime, didn't I? Yeah, my name's Tex. No, it's something stupider like Rex. <laughs> it was, I forget the line. Anyway, that, I got to watch that movie. It's, a, it's so good. Brad Pitt's <laughs> incredible in it. <laughs> but anyway, while uh, while Waters was attending the trials, the Manson trials in Los Angeles, he met a German hippie girl named Lou. Uh, Lou had become Tex Watson's girlfriend while he was in jail. Like she came, she she came over to America to be like a hippie because she'd seen you know this flower power stuff on TV. And the first hippies she met were the fucking fan, the Manson family. <laughs> and she met, I mean, the, the ones who committed the murders, they were in jail. She met some other members of the family who were not in jail. 
and became friends with them. And then they tried to get her to join. They were trying to get her to like shave her head and stuff. She's like, nah, I'm not going to do all that. But so she kind of like stepped away from that, but, but replaced that relationship with them with a romantic relationship with Tex Watson while he was in jail. So anyway, John Waters ends up meeting her at the trial and they kind of became friends. And the two began hitchhiking together to the California men's colony to visit Tex pretty regularly. They'd go up there every few weeks and visit him. And through this connection, Waters and Tex kind of became friends. I mean, if I guess if you could call them friends. And they corresponded for years with uh, Waters often visiting Tex in person. Like over the course of, I think, a decade, uh, he was going to visit him pretty regularly. Now, I, I think one thing we have to talk about here is if you read his book, Shock Value, John Waters writes about Tex Watson in a way that kind of makes Tex seem like he's an okay dude, like just a normal guy. And obviously he's... I was about to say, does he <laughs> petition for Tex too? He, he, yeah, so he he doesn't. But you know, he, he does kind of talk about Tex like he's reformed and, and things like that a little bit. But... You know, that book, Shock Value, was published in 1981. Waters was like in his mid-30s at the time. And over the decades, he's really kind of softened on his view of Watson, even seeming to regret not only his connection to him, but how, how he portrayed him in his book as well. So in a later book called Role Models, which came out in 2010, Waters kind of revisited his earlier words about his relationship with Tex and said his previous observations had been inappropriate and written with little insight. Uh, he would go on to say, this is a quote from that book. He says, I am guilty too, guilty of using the Manson murders as a jokey, smart-ass way in my earlier films without the slightest feeling for the victims' families or the lives of the brainwashed Manson killer kids who are also victims in this sad and terrible case. So obviously he has backtracked a little bit on it or just with age and maturity has gone looked back on like what he wrote about Tex Watson and going, Oh, that's a little fucked up actually. And, <laughs> and not very respectful to the actual victims of the crime. So, you know, even though this movie is, if you watch female trouble, it is dedicated to Charles Watson at the beginning and Charles that's... being Tex Watson's real name. Tex is the name that Charles Manson gave him. So he didn't want to go by that name. So uh, yeah, it's at the very end of the credits. It says for, Charles Watson. And I think uh, Waters kind of regrets that looking back at it. Mm -hmm. It's it's so weird because I'm just now thinking of this, but as we're recording this one, I've had that thought about like even true crime podcasts because of the way they delve so much into stuff going on. They want to, you know, you got to you got to find this balance between like what's really like ex exploitative yeah. versus like what's actual information that you could talk about. Because I get it. Like I get being interested in serial killers. I, I have a t-shirt from the museum of death in new right. Orleans. Okay. So I went, I, I find that stuff interesting, but there is this like balance to play. And it is weird to me when, he, well, so, so an example I'm thinking of that's made me be thinking about it recently is there was a girl. Uh, I don't know if you saw the story, like as we're recording this, like literally like yesterday, the day before this one father of a murdered kid has been in the news speaking out about um, like his 11 year old son, I think was murdered by a stepmother. I won't, I won't go into the details of the whole thing, but there was a true crime podcast where the, the girl who hosted it did the Freedom of Information Act, requested a bunch of stuff from it while she was doing the podcast. She got all this stuff, including the autopsy photos of the kid Ooh. and took time to like do like the quarter's recording over the pictures of the kid and put it on her Patreon to, to get, you know, you could pay an extra three bucks and you could get the photos of the, all this yeah. other stuff. And so the, oh. yeah, the dad's been, you know, in the news recently talking about this, like, you know, talking about how like 
the one day I didn't go to trial is the day they showed autopsy photos of my kid. And he's like, now, now people are taking internet. shit you put on. Yeah, it's people you, you put the shit on Patreon and now they've moved on to YouTube and everywhere else. And he's like, I feel like I can't even get on the Internet without the possibility. I'm going to see my dead son. Yeah. And uh, and it's just really fucked up. Yeah, that's uh, so, that's going over the line. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, as, I say all as that someone, to say, as someone who's had to review that stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. So so in context, if you think about, I mean, the day that, that this movie's coming out and in dedication to Tex Watson, and I mean, you're pretty close to all this happening. Like it's yeah, this yeah. This is, is still five, fresh. This is five years after the murders. So this is this yeah. is still very very fresh history. Mm. I could see people being very pissed off about that. Yeah, I don't know that there was ever any like big controversy about it. Honestly, I haven't run across anything. <laughs> I didn't read anything either, yeah. but I also think it was the world before the internet. That's true. So, yeah, you know, they were just you probably bitching. didn't have people on Twitter yet. They were just bitching it about it in person. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I right. It out. So anyway, so after he met Watson, was visiting him. Waters returned to L.A. to write Pink Flamingos. Uh, there's actually a scene in Pink Flamingos where Divine walks in front of a wall that's graffitied with the phrase "Free Tex Watson." I don't know if you remember that, but it's in the the sequence where she's like walking through New York or through New York through Baltimore, uh, and it's on a, a white brick wall behind her, spray painted really big "Free Tex Watson." Well, that's because that was I think I mentioned it last episode. Yeah, but that, that timeline wise, that actually he had already started visiting Tex because he started visiting him after Multiple Maniacs. So that's why that made its way into Pink Flamingos. Because he did actually write to Tex Watson at a, a time saying that he thought that the jury had, that, that, that their sentence was incorrect because he thought that he that Tex Watson was actually insane and should have been declared insane at the trial uh, and committed to, I guess, a mental institution instead of to jail. So that was kind of where that came from. He didn't want him out in the mm-hmm. streets necessarily, but that's where that came from. So anyway, it's a couple of years later. It's time to start writing his follow-up to Pink Flamingos, and Waters takes inspiration from Tex and from the way that the Manson kids had been brainwashed, eventually landing on the idea of a biopic of a woman who's manipulated into believing that crime is beauty. What Waters actually told Tex this idea, uh, and Tex thought he was crazy. Which, <laughs> and Matt... <laughs> <laughs> if, Tex, if Tex Watson is telling you you're crazy, then right. you might need to rethink some things. But yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, Tex ended up uh, giving Waters a gift. It's a little wooden toy helicopter, and Waters. It's something that he built like in wood shop class, I guess, and in, in prison, you know. And Waters used it in the movie. It's in the opening credits on the scene where it says in the opening credits where it says for Charles Watson. The image on screen is of the helicopter that Tex Watson had made for Waters and given it to him as a gift. So it's right there in the movie. Super weird. Wow. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> Isn't it? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> well, once he had written his script, it was time for John Waters to assemble his cast, which basically just meant he called all of his friends and said, hey, you guys want to do a movie again? <laughs> now, not all of them were still in Baltimore. Remember, uh, Divine Star was kind of rising, especially after Pink Flamingos. So he and Mink Stole, they had moved to San Francisco in 1973 to cash in on their new notoriety. They started doing stage productions at the Palace Theater. Remember where uh, Multiple Maniacs had premiered? Uh, David Lockery, he was in New York, uh, which, you know, not far from Baltimore, but he was living in New York at the time trying to make it as an actor. Uh, He was appearing in a play uh, with a, a company called Charles Lundlum's Ridiculous Theatrical Company. But... Once John contacted them about doing a follow-up to Pink Flamingos, they were all quickly on their way back to Baltimore. 
we've uh we've talked about divide being uh elizabeth taylor in the past yeah and you might say like this might be the most that divine has looked like elizabeth taylor in one of the movies especially uh, in the early like that, that middle section of this movie especially yeah. you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't i didn't mean like fucked not, up face not at the end when she's got a mohawk <laughs> and acid scars all over her face yeah <laughs> <Right>. although <laughs> although very close yeah very close to very or close. lesbian prison divide mm-hmm. um john waters says he was also paying a huge tribute to an argentinian actress named isabel sarley who was famous for starring in the films of uh, her lover. I don't know why I always want to say lover that way. But, <laughs> it's the appropriate uh, way to say uh, it. Isabel, it was uh, Armando Bo, who was considered the Russ Meyer of that country, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, the Argentinian so, Russ Meyer. <laughs> yeah, the Argentinian Russ Meyer. And as Isabel Sarli, uh, I actually found interviews online or like a thing online where he, he presents an award to her and one where he's like presenting the film Fuego on like, TCM or something. But he references fuego probably the most in the interviews that's the 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 movie that he most remembers for her uh he and divine he said they would go and watch isabel and armando's films in like spanish theaters together in the 60s hmm. they, they would like literally cheer for her every time she came on screen it was like kind of exploitation like sexploitation kind right. of movies but like the films of divine walking uh, along with the car following her and nobody knows that she's being filmed like that is straight out of one of their films oh wow john waters and divine do that in like all three of these movies so far at some point yeah and he says straight up he stole that from uh armando Bo okay. doing that with isabel sarley he also says uh he based dodd davenport divides character on two delinquent teenage girls that he knew in high school i think <laughs> so if you're wondering about that i should also mention uh jean genet man i'm Ryder, glad like, you uh, went into jean, jean genet because i thought about it and i just got overwhelmed <laughs> well i only i only got so far as to that he really like says that this was a huge inspiration for yeah. him. he's just like he literally prays every day to either genet it's mostly pa- pasolini the director yeah. But uh, it's him or, or Janae. Like, he loves reading the writing of Janae. Like, it, it, the quote, like, from the thing I was reading last about it, he says, uh, Jean Janae has always been one of my idols. The original headstone to his grave was stolen and never found. So I used to fantasize that I had stolen it and kept it hidden all these years. <laughs> he said, uh, Janae would like it if somebody stole his headstone and sold it, don't you think? Betrayal <laughs> was his favorite compliment. But he, he referenced Janae in a bunch of interviews, like I read about this movie. So I figured it was worth mentioning uh pasolini you can literally find on i don't remember if it was on spotify or where i read it but he's put out audio of the prayer that he says for pasolini like the john waters has? like you yeah you can find that wow and jean genet if, if most people probably don't know who he is but he was a um french writer but the whole crime is beauty thing that that kind of comes from the writings of of jean genet who was a criminal who became a writer so uh, that that's where that inspiration comes from. I can't say that I know a lot about him. I haven't read any of his stuff, so I only know what I've read about him. You know, but he was he was a big he was a big political activist. He was um, he was gay at a time when obviously that was not being being out was not a thing that people did. Sorry, as a side note, I also think it's weird that Waters is making these movies this early. This kind of fascinates me that he, what you just said. Not only that being gay wasn't as accepted but he's like talking about heterosexual relationships just being boring oh yeah you know it's just yeah it's so (laughs) crazy to me i know it's it's wild like i i and i that's one thing i love about him 
is that he did not care what he didn't care anything. He does not care anything about social norms at any point in history. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. like be yourself and that's who you are. And, and don't kind of don't be ashamed of that. Uh, you know, and, and of course, and he does it in a very a highly satirical way, but, uh, but that's just, that's one thing I love about John Waters is that he never tried to, even when he went a little more mainstream, Later on in his career, he's still making movies that are distinctly like outside of what regular Hollywood filmmakers are making. It was, it's strange that I wasn't thinking about saying all these things that I'm saying now and I'm holding up the whole podcast. But it is weird to me that he's doing this thing that like he is counterculture to what normal society is doing. But then the huge popular counterculture would be the hippies. And he's also like making fun of them all the time yeah. too. And, yeah. and that's, I don't know. So he's just he's like the counter counterculture. Yeah. And actually, as I say that out loud, I remember in one of his uh, interviews, him saying something like, I don't remember if it was this movie or the next one. He talks about that. He was just like, the crazy gays love us. He's like <laughs> the normal gays, not so much, but you know, we, we appeal to the outsiders and the minorities. Yeah, that's a, that, that's absolutely true. So before we move on with the cast, uh, there is one little side note that I came across. Several of the Dreamlanders, uh, being John Waters' you know regular acting troupe uh, or regular collaborators, they some of them did show a little bit of concern over how, it, at least what they perceived to be John Waters making a lot more money off of Pink Flamingos than they were. They weren't seeing very much money off of it. Mm. And the truth is, John Waters was seeing some money from Pink Flamingos because uh, it was playing at midnight shows. It played for years and years. I mean, it played for two years regularly after Female Trouble came out. It was still going strong as Pink Flamingos was still going strong as a, as a midnight movie. But he was also really making most of his money off of public appearances than he was from the film itself. Like that, that's where most of his income was coming from. I mean, that's all, that's what he does now. He hasn't made a movie in almost 20 years. He just makes his money off public appearances. But to, ease some of the tension among his dreamlanders early on in the planning stages for uh, for female trouble water signed an agreement that had 25% of all the profits from his films up through pink flamingos so mondo well mondo trash I couldn't really make any money because of the music stuff but basically multiple maniacs and pink flamingos 25% of all the profits from those movies was going to be split among the original dreamlanders you know that key group of people that he started making movies with and that's a pretty generous offer especially to do so after the fact like he did not have to do that nobody was under yeah. contract uh, no, but there was nothing legally requiring him to do that. He did that because these were his friends. He and he wanted them to feel like they were being taken care of, especially. And he didn't want there to be any any like animosity between him and them or any resentment. Uh, unfortunately, there still was some resentment. They didn't all feel like this profit sharing scheme was enough. Uh, David Lockery, in particular, uh, he you know he had taken note of all of the press and the buzz surrounding Pink Flamingos, uh, and he he kind of wondered aloud to other Dreamlanders, whether Waters was hogging too much of the money for himself. And then as we get into the filming of, of, a uh, of female trouble, Lockery would see that Waters is working with a much more professional crew and more sophisticated equipment on the film. So that only kind of served to fan his resentment. He, it's almost like he felt like he was getting left behind a little bit, you know, and not seeing any money from what he felt was something that he, very much creatively contributed to because he did but even so he did agree to do this film uh he actually served a dual role as the film's villain donald dasher and as a hairstylist he's he is credited as a hairstylist in the film uh although i think he was only responsible for his own hair 
in this because uh, Chris Mason was the primary hairstylist on the film. Uh, and like many other people who work on John Waters films, Chris Mason also appears on screen. She's one of the prison guards towards the end of the film. You know, there's those two like really butch pr- prison guards. She's the shorter mm-hmm. of the two that has the most dialogue. That's Chris Mason. Uh, okay. I've got to say da- David Lockery is still one of my favorites. He's still possibly my favorite dreamlander besides my, of course my crush on mink stole, which feels a little creepier to have in this movie, <laughs> but he's, 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 I'd love seeing him. I don't know what it is about him. I still Still say like there's just some natural charisma he's the very guy charismatic has. yeah and it, it's sad to hear that he's feeling this way at this point and 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 i know we're going to talk about this more in the next episode but you know these guys are all in different places now because they're growing with john waters movies mm-hmm. but they're also trying to separate and they're trying to make it on their own right and become like break through to the other side of this thing they won't don't want to be it's seen sad. as just like an actor who only appears in john waters movies which is what they're being typecast as at this time like the none of them are having a an easy time breaking away from that the ones who want to i mean i think mary vivian pierce and mink stole don't really care they didn't really have any big aspirations to be big actors i don't think but david lockery like this is what he wants to do and he's only known as the guy from pink flamingos yeah and he 100 percent is in new york because he's you know you mentioned a play but he's he's trying to become an actor and i think that serves as some frustration for him a part of some of the resentment he's feeling there's other issues he starts dealing with demons he's gonna face probably to cope with those things mm-hmm. but uh yeah. it's uh that that's why i'm sure it's very frustrating for him in the situation he is at this point uh so it's just kind of sad that that's how he's feeling during this time. Yeah, I mean, and it's weird because when a movie like Pink Flamingos is big, it becomes a phenomenon. It's still considered, especially among like Hollywood, you know, casting agents and and all kinds of you know those those type of folks. It's still just seen as like a cult film. So even the people mm-hmm. who are in it, who are involved in it, they're only seen as like cult figures to these like studio bigwigs. So it makes it hard for them to get cast. I mean, Jack Nance didn't get a whole bunch of like movie offers after Eraserhead, you know, uh, that's just not that, that because the studio just sees them as like, Hey, you were in this cult movie. You're not an actor, actor kind of thing. Yeah. It's like being the prettiest girl at your school. That doesn't mean you're the prettiest girl in the country. Right. That's the world, you know, it's what I dealt with at least. Yeah, no, it's, it, it was a, it was a tough adolescence for you, Gary. I'm sure. Well, Lockery's screen wife, Donna Dasher, she was played by Mary Vivian Pierce, uh, Bonnie Pierce, you know, after pink flamingos Pierce, uh, she stayed around in Baltimore. She started taking some ballet lessons, uh, which is a skill that I think she uses in female trouble uh, pretty well she brings a very like poised physicality to her character so i think those those ba- that came from those ballet lessons that she was taking and of course female trouble had been written specifically as a star vehicle for divine and divine would end up playing the dual role of the film's main character don davenport and a supporting but i'd say very important plot wise role of um the character named earl peterson so she so divine plays the main character plus a male character a very gross-looking male character at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Edith Massey, she had retired from her job as a barmaid. Uh, she opened a thrift store in Baltimore called Edith's Shopping Bag. Edith, of course, played Divine's mother in Pink Flamingos, and that role had garnered her a lot of fans. So that thrift shop actually kind of was a front for the the, uh, the Edith Massey fan club. That's where people would come to get pictures with her and get her autograph and stuff. And then every now and then, she would remember that she actually needs to sell the occasional clothing item if she wants to pay the rent on this place. But she yeah. that, that 
that was her thing. She she hung out at her little thrift store until John Waters came calling with another role because I don't think she's in very many roles that outside of John Waters. Nor did she care to be. Uh, in Female Trouble, Edith is a uh, is very memorable as Aunt Ida, which is uh, one of Don Davenport's arch enemies in the film, and she has a hell of a, a character entrance. If I if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, she finally gets to show off the boobies. She sure does. You know, from Nearly I put my eye out. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> I think uh, she thinks they're very pretty. I remember yeah. in the Multiple Maniacs episode talking about how uh, she'd whip it out of her bar and yeah. would say, "Yeah, would just like whip it out of the bar every once in a while." I'd be like, "Look at it, so pretty." Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she also, I, I am going to just say this. Uh, she and Donna Dasher are better actresses at this point. Yeah. I think they, they, they sound way better. I think everyone she also sounds gets the hook better. For, yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah. She also gets that hook for a hand, which uh, John Water says as a kid, that used to be a, a thing he liked to do when he would put on shows for family members. He'd do the <laughs> coat hanger in his coat and yeah. play car accident, is what he said. <laughs> which, which Taffy does later on in this film. She plays car accident. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some of our other returning Dreamlanders include Cookie Mueller and Suzanne Walsh as Conchetta and Chicklet. Those are Don's, you know, juvenile delinquent friends who are with her really through the whole movie. Uh, the three hairdressers that we meet at the lipstick hair salon uh, named Wink, Butterfly, and Dribbles are played by Ed Peranio, who is Vince's brother. He was, uh, I think, the back half of the lobster in Multiple Maniacs. Uh, he was in there. Uh, you've got Paul Swift and George Figgs. Uh, while the secretary at the salon is played by Susan Lowe. So these are all people we've seen before. Uh, Bob Adams, who had let them haul Divine's trailer onto his property for Pink Flamingos. Remember, he lived in the hippie commune there. Uh, he plays Ernie, which is the guy that Aunt Ida tries to get Gator to hook up with. Uh, Elizabeth Coffey, who's the transgender woman who has a uh, very memorable appearance in Pink Flamingos. Uh, she's I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember, remember that, I'll, can, can, can you describe it? Yeah, she whips out her dick. Oh, oh, okay. All right. That's, 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 that's her. Uh, okay. She plays Ernestine here, who is Dawn's lesbian prison lover. And Channing Wilroy is almost unrecognizable as the prosecutor in the courtroom scenes. If it wasn't for his voice, I would not have known that was him. Uh, many of the other smaller roles went to people who had bit parts in Waters' early, earlier films. You know, you've got Pat Moran. Pat Moran's always there somewhere. Uh, she's credited as bitch prisoner. I think she's the one that's just like screaming stuff when they're showing the different prisoners in their cells towards the end. Um, or some of the roles went to folks who ran with the Dreamland crowd. Some others were just non-professional actors from the Baltimore area. Or in many cases, they were just related to other cast and crew members. Like David Lockery's mom, I think, is in the jury. You know, so they would just get their friends and family to come fill in some of these roles. Oh, and we should also mention Michael Potter. Uh, he plays Gator, Don's husband slash hairdresser. There's not a lot to say about Potter because he's not really a Dreamlander since nobody on the crew really knew him. He never appeared in another movie. Uh, not for John Waters, not for anyone else. This is his one and done role as Gator here. And the story goes that Pat Moran just found him walking down the street one day, thought he looked the part and asked him if he wanted to be in a movie. He agreed. And then Van Smith made him take his clothes off as part of his like audition process because uh role requires a good bit of nudity, you know? So I guess they needed to make sure he was comfortable in doing that. And that's pretty much all I know about him. Uh, after the movie, he just kind of disappeared. And John Waters says that he hasn't spoken to him since shooting rap yeah i haven't found much about that and i know except that i i did see that like apparently the role of gator nelson was uh supposed to be for danny mill mills yeah originally who played crackers 
and he was not available for whatever reason. You know, well, the reason that Danny Mills didn't do it uh, is because he was a draft dodger. And he was worried that any uh, because Pink Flamingos had gotten kind of big, he was kind of scared that he was going to get arrested if his profile got too high. Uh, and the only reason uh, he did Pink Flamingos was because he was in love with Mary Vivian Pierce and he wanted to be in a movie with her. That's so his, he was not thinking, let's say, with his brain when he decided to make Pink Flamingos. And he came to his senses, I think, a little bit with this one, thinking maybe I shouldn't put my face on a movie screen if I'm a draft dodger and I could get arrested. <laughs> so that's why he ended nice. up not being in this. Oh. And uh, anyway, good old Van Smith. John Waters always has nice things to say about him. He says, as, uh, as they say in Baltimore, he can make a dollar holler, <laughs> which reminded me of Justin's mom because she would say yeah. she'd holler for a dollar. It was kind of something similar, if I remember correctly. But... Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Had to get one of those in there. So anyway, Todd, I'm, I'm really excited to hear about all the um, Star Trek alumni who are in this film. Um, yeah, there's nobody in Star Trek, but up, up, up. Oh, all right, let's so, go. All right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Uh, with the money that he had made from Pink Flamingos, Waters was able to move out of his apartment, which was in a rough part of Baltimore, to a much bigger apartment in a slightly less rough part of Baltimore, but still a little bit rough. No. <laughs> this I mean, apartment it is Baltimore. It is Baltimore. It's Baltimore, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like Baltimore it just is rough. Yeah, is what yeah. I, it's what more of an exception if you live in the in the nice area. Mm. Uh, we're going to get so many letters from people in Baltimore <laughs> talking shit about their city. I've never fucking been to Baltimore. I, I've just seen the wire a lot. What do I know? <laughs> I think it would be. I think it would be nice to just get a letter anymore, <laughs> <laughs> like in the mail. <laughs> Like just somebody hand writes a letter about Baltimore to us. (laughs) Well, this new apartment of John Waters, this became the new home of Dreamland Studios. And it became the location where they would do all their rehearsals and everything. Remember that John Waters movies and Female Trouble is no exception. These are all painstakingly rehearsed beforehand so that they can basically shoot as few takes as possible when the time comes. Once the script was in place, art director slash set designer Vince Piranio immediately started working on sets. First thing he created was Divine's Home, uh, which is located in a condemned second-floor apartment above a a store that belonged to a friend of theirs. And to make the location appropriately tacky, Piranio covered it in in really ugly wallpaper that he had bought from a local store that they had this entire basement full of all this wallpaper that had gone out of style. So they were selling it for like a dollar a roll. So he just bought a bunch of old, ugly, out-of-style wallpaper and used it to decorate Don's apartment. And then that same apartment, that same location, is used for Don's apartment post face full of acid when she gets back home from the hospital and the dashers have done it all up in red. So Vince Perani had to do that. He just recovered the, the same walls in this sparkly red wallpaper and a lot of glitter. Uh, there's a lot of glitter there. He's probably still got glitter. It's it's all yeah. still there. <laughs> uh, you also might notice, I, I, this is a funny little observation, that there's a lot of like metal work in this movie. You know, you've got Edith's Cage. The, even the sign to the um, the beauty salon is, you know, is metal. And that's only because Vince was working at a metal works company. Or him and his brother had actually started a metal works company at the time. So they just had access to all the tools and equipment that they needed for this stuff. But, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Vince Piranio over the last couple episodes, especially on Pink Flamingos. Because, you know, he was responsible for, I mean, his biggest contribution to that one was Divine's, her trailer in that one but he's working with john waters through all these movies but i think his work here like this is where you really start to see how much he's contributing 
to the overall look of a John Waters movie because this movie has his fingerprints all over it. Him and Van Smith are both on a another level on this film from where they had been on the previous film because the sets and everything in this, like that kitschy retro look that Vince Peronio creates here, that's something that's become associated with the look of a John Waters movie. And that's all like they don't ha- they're not having production meetings and things like that. They're not like discussing the look. The Vince Peronio and Vance Van Smith are not even collaborating on like how's this costume going to look on this set. They don't know that they're supposed to do that. <laughs> so they're not doing it. So it's just kind of whatever works works. And both of them like the the costumes and the sets that are created here. I think this is like it's just one of those signature John Waters things that really come is coming from the mind of Vince Peronio more than anything. So I know we've talked about how great his contributions are on Pink Flamingos, but here I think you can really see like his work on this film is pretty outstanding because every location, every set on this is just like wonderfully tacky and ugly in the, all the best ways. And uh, I just wanted to point point him out a little bit here it feels like that's a like a natural evolution too for this because they got like a lot more canvas to paint on yeah uh because if you go back to like multiple maniacs which feels like it takes place on like two to three sets right maybe uh which are literally that just their apartments their apartments um yeah. yeah and then you go to like pink flamingos which feels a lot outdoors plus the trailer you know and this one it's like mostly indoors it's almost uh, yeah most of the stuff is yeah so you get a lot of different places for them to play with i guess yeah, yeah very true i mean with a bigger budget and you know a bigger scope because this is a much bigger film in scope than anything that John Waters has done before. It definitely gives them more opportunity to play around, a bigger sandbox to play in. Well, if this film looks, you know, and feels a little more professional than anything we've seen from John Waters before, because in my opinion, it very much does, uh, there's a very good reason for that, because he actually had some professional help on this one. Uh, Specifically, he had assistance from the heads of the filmmaking department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, two guys named Leroy Morice and I'm going to fuck this name up. Jockin? Did you say Jockin? Is that how you would say that? Or jo- Joaquin? Huh? Joaquin? It's not Joaquin. That's not how you spell it. Could be. It could be. <laughs> I guess it you're, could be. I guess you're right. Uh, we're gonna call him <laughs> Joe because I think that I think that he went That's by hard. Joe, and I think Leroy went by Lee. So Lee and Joe is what we're gonna call him. Uh, Jockin Breitenstein. I guess that's how you say it. I was name. waiting for you to get to that last name. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. That's right, easier, right. Breitenstein. That's easier than Jochen, J-O-C-H-E-N. Anyway, these two guys, they were, you know, like I imagine a lot of heads of university film departments, you know, they had dreams of working in the film business, and they had actually done a few commercials and documentaries themselves under the name of The Cinnamon, which it sounds funny saying that out loud because it just sounds like I'm saying yeah, cinnamon. Yeah. <laughs> works better. It works better on paper. It does. The Cinnamon. Cinnamon. Uh, that's it, a dumb name. They should have thought that through when they came up with that. <laughs> yeah. They should have gone with something like Cinefreak or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Freaks, uh, plural. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Waters Cinefreak. had gotten word that these guys had, had helped out on some other independent film productions and they and reached out to them for assistance on female trouble. So they made a deal with Waters that gave him unlimited use of their film production equipment, including cameras, lights, a dolly, sound recording equipment, basically everything he needed, including people to help run it. Uh, Students from the university would actually be able to work on the film and get like college credit for it, which justified the university allowing Waters to use all of their equipment completely free of charge. They just wanted to be able to get their students on a film set. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but he was able to use all this fairly professional equipment for no money at all. 
Now, it may come as a surprise to those of you who've seen John Waters' previous films, but up until this point, he was really more concerned with the content of his films, let's say, than the uh, technical aspects, which I know is probably shocking, right, Todd? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he he did he knew yeah. he needed to step up a little bit, right? He needed that he needed to grow as a filmmaker, and that meant working to make his movies look and sound like the stuff he was seeing in the theaters. He didn't have any technical know-how himself, so this meant he had to have other collaborators who knew how to do this kind of stuff. Now, sound in particular has always been an issue for Waters films. Remember those early like short films all the way through Mondo Trasho, those were shot silent because he didn't know how to sync sound. So there was no way for him to do it. And then on Multiple Maniacs and Pink Flamingos, uh, he had sound, but those movies were shot on a single system camera where the sound itself is recorded directly onto a magnetic strip that was on the film itself, which isn't ideal for a narrative film because it limits the type of shots you can get and how those shots can be edited together. Yeah, most of those I think are used on uh like news reels and stuff like yeah. that is what they would they would use that for uh so not not they're not doing multiple angles and things like that you know right yeah so lucky for him the university of maryland uh film department had double system equipment and they allowed him to have stuff where he could record and edit the sound and the image separately from each other like a real pro for the, so for the first time ever he can have like an actual sound department john waters has a sound department everybody uh which consisted of a guy uh <laughs> it was uh like his name was robert meyer yeah robert meyer the, the one-man sound department on, on on female trouble uh robert meyer uh, he's he's a very important character here. He's we're going to talk about him probably several times over the next few episodes. But at this time, he is uh, he's in his early twenties. I think he was twenty three when they filmed this. So just out, he was it was done with college at this point. He was actually not a student at the university. He was uh, employed by the university though. He worked in what was he called the cage, which is basically in the film department. They had this uh, area where they kept all of the film making equipment for the students to use, but the students had to come and check it out. It was locked in a cage. He would have them sign and then he would give them the equipment. Basically, he's like the like a librarian, but he's keeping all track of who's got what in the film department. He's, he's not actually working as a student or as a filmmaker, but he does have some experience because that's what he had gone to school for. Uh, so he had, knew how to use a lot of the equipment that they had there at the university, including the sound equipment. So when the original sound recordist that the university had supplied was found uh, shooting up heroin in the bathroom. Uh, remember, John Waters has a strict no drug policy on all of his movies. So this was a no, no. Uh, that guy got yeah. fired and they called up Bob Meyer and they asked him to fill in. So Meyer would end up working with Waters on the next several films, I think all the way through I want to say Crybaby. I think he works on everything up through Crybaby, but he actually gets a bigger role going forward. He becomes a production manager. Uh, but I do want to mention him because he's written a great book about his experiences with John Waters called Low Budget Hell. Uh, and Low Budget Hell is one of the resources that we use for this episode and we'll probably use for the next couple of episodes because it's a really great firsthand account of like what it's like to work on a John Waters set. It's really, really good stuff. I really thought The Cage was going to be like Vince Piranha, like... He just seems to be real invested in the uh, metal works he gets to do now. So, like, he just he was like, I can fucking make a cage. He does make and a so cage. Like, it's right. a giant bird cage that Edie sits in for That's most true. of the movie. That is good point. <laughs> Another yeah. integral crew member that the university supplied uh, for this was an editor named named uh, Charles Rogero. Waters had edited, you know, all of his own films up until this point. 
But now he had someone with a little more experience. And even though Ruggiero had never edited a full feature, uh, full length feature film on his own, he at least had enough experience to, you know, know how to properly cut and catalog John Waters footage. Um, you know, Waters would definitely have edited Female Trouble himself. He likes the control that that offers, but he conceded that this double system film editing method was just too complex for him. He just didn't know how to do it, basically. So he needed somebody mm -hmm. who did. Uh, but that wouldn't end up mattering anyway because Waters insisted on being in the editing suite with Ruggiero for the entire time he was editing. He oversaw every single cut, made all of the creative decisions in the editing suite. Ruggiero was just there to kind of do the technical aspects for it. But right. Ruggiero, you Work know, he, uh, he ends up being a collaborator with Waters. He works on three films with him. Uh, this was obviously his first one, and he worked on this one for a flat fee of $300 for three months' work. Uh, but Ruggiero also came from a very wealthy family and he was like, he was like in his late thirties. He's not like a college student, like normal college student age. He's, he's much older than all the other kids who are working on this uh, because mm -hmm. he, he came from a rich family and he did all this other stuff before getting into filmmaking, but that's how he landed here. So with a much more professional crew, came more professional filmmaking techniques. You know, no longer was Waters forced to shoot these long single take dialogue scenes. Now he could shoot coverage. Like Gary said, it's like he's making a real movie, right? Uh, he could chop a scene into several different angles, use different takes, shoot things out of sequence because most of his movies up until this point were shot like in the same order that you see them in the film. Uh, it was right. really starting to feel like they were making a real movie here, which of course is a little bit intimidating to some of the laid back artist types that John Waters had worked with up until this point. See, none of them had ever been on a real film set before. They'd only been on the set of John Waters movies. Uh, that was their only filmmaking experience. So when some of the crew from the university, for instance, started, you know, like moving around Vince Peranio's furniture so they could set up lights, he got kind of pissed off about it because he didn't understand why they were like, he had painstakingly set all this stuff up in a certain place. And then all these college kids come in and just start moving stuff around so they could set up their lights. And he was, he didn't understand that that's part of the process. Now, this is a movie that's still, it's still being shot for $25,000. So even though we've got some people who know what they're doing on the set, it's not like this is a big Hollywood production by any means, which means you know, they're still having to shoot guerrilla style when necessary. They're shooting a lot of this stuff on sets. Like, like you said, Gary, most of them are on sets, but pretty much any scene that was shot in a public place, like the scene with divine walking down the street that you referenced earlier, that's done without permission, without permits, just like they'd done on their previous films. Uh, and like Pink Flamingos had been done, it was shot primarily on the weekend since most of the cast and crew all had regular jobs during the week. And I guess the kids at the university had to go to class during the, during the week and this is how they were yeah. spending their weekends did uh was and i guess that was a real life alleyway where divine throws a fish on Edie, and yeah you know i think that was outside of john's neighbors were i think that was outside neighbors of john's were apartment. like what the fuck i think that was john waters apartment where <laughs> <laughs> they shot that but uh prior to them starting the shoot divine had to grow his hair out and his eyebrows because you know he shaves his eyebrows so that he could play earl uh, and it took about a month for him to do this, at which point he, John Waters tells the story, he says, Divine looks in the mirror at himself where he's like, he's got a five o'clock shadow, he's balding, and Divine just looks at himself and goes, I have not aged well, <laughs> which <laughs> we've all been there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the scenes where Divine uh, plays Earl, they had to be shot first, of course, for obvious reasons. Uh, first, they had to shoot the scene that takes place later in the film where Earl meets his daughter Taffy, who is played by Mink Stoll. Let me tell you something about that scene. I I don't know how many movies have made me uncomfortable at this level, but <laughs> this will for this is forever. It takes 
takes everything good about Pornhub and just turns it on its head. (laughs) 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 But no, this, this whole scene, that whole scene is just so fucking uncomfortable. And you find it more uncomfortable than the chicken fuck scene. Man, I don't. I I think I think in context it may be a little more uncomfortable. With the dad finds out he's got a daughter, and then it's just like, oh, I got somebody else to have sex with. Yeah, well, I mean, but and, but you know, those are fictitious characters, at least. Not, well, yeah, thank, <laughs> thank not, God, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I, they are on Pornhub too, just so everybody knows. Um, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, I hope. Also. I hope. Yeah. So. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, not 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 her real stepdad, Todd. <laughs> well, now it's ruined, Gary. Thanks. <laughs> Peek behind the curtain. <laughs> no, I just I don't know. It's that, and I also hate vomit, which John Waters is apparently really determined that he's going to have a real puke here. He did what? I'm not going to fake it like every other movie. We're having a real throw up on screen. You know, Meek demands the best she demands real vomit on her face (laughs) (laughs) so they tried that they tried to get they got they luckily i this is the most considerate thing so far i've heard of him doing is he did have a nurse on set to supervise this while they uh had several vials of something called ipacac ipacac uh yeah which is uh apparently used in hospitals to induce Mm -hmm. vomiting in patients so just before they started shooting divide uh ate a quart of vegetable soup and then took a vial of ipecac which is a normal dose and usually it starts to work immediately but that did not happen here they waited around and waited and waited and nothing happened and so the nurse thought maybe devise just a bigger person i get that i have that i'm big bold sometimes you need a little bit more and so uh they give divide another vial and wait and wait and nothing happens so divide takes a third vial of ipecac and uh, after the third one gets a little queasy, uh, so they start rolling camera, and all he can do is just dribble a little bit. Definitely not the the groundbreaking projectile vomit that <laughs> Waters was promised from this drug. Yeah, I mean, he he definitely wanted this to be like like the dog dookie scene, and you know, this was not necessarily trying to outdo what he had done there because I think actual vomit is way less gross than eating dog shit. Uh, that just my opinion. <laughs> But, but he wanted, he didn't, he didn't want to simulate it just like he had not simulated the dog shit, you know, in in Pink Flamingos. So he's like, yeah, we're going to have real puke, but didn't quite work out that way. It's weird though. In, in Bob Meyer's book, the one that I just mentioned, low, uh, low budget hell, he makes it sound like the little bit, cause we do see divine puke and Bob Meyer makes it sound like the, the puke that we see is that little bit of dribble that he was that, that was the result of the ipecac but in shock value john waters says that he eventually just gave up on real puke completely it's like well, this is just not working let's got, go back to our old standby and he just had divide puke out creamed corn so uh, so according to john waters it's fake what we see in the film according to bob meyer it's not but regardless after trying this over and over and over they wasted like a full day's film ration. Remember, film is always the biggest expense on any on any movie. Uh, and Meyer does go on to say that uh, about, about a half an hour after they wrap shooting for the day, he's like, I guess he's like walking out to his car and he looks over and Divine is just leaned over on a tree, just puking his guts out. So the <laughs> Ipecac did work. It just worked like an hour too late. Man, I hate 
vomit anyway. So this whole thing is gross. But yeah, the cream corn goes back to multiple maniacs. If for anybody that doesn't remember with the puke eater, Mm -hmm. which thank God that wasn't real vomit. And John Waters (laughs) wasn't completely insane at that point. (laughs) I I also think of poor Mink Stoll, who is in this situation. And and I I say poor Mink Stoll. She She, clearly is in for anything. She's down. She's not being forced. She's down to do whatever, but I don't know. I think about her poor mom, I guess I should say, who, if you remember the multiple maniacs episode, I talked about like when Mink is also seconding as the, uh, you know, the patron to the little freak show Mm -hmm. or whatever. And she comes out normally dressed and everything. And I remember like the story she tells about her mom singer is like, Oh honey, God, please. You should dress like that. Right. More often. (laughs) And instead I'm not crazy. Mom. I think around this time in real, life mink stole was wearing like all black uh like with with black rosary beads hanging around her neck she was like in her goth phase before goth was even a thing <laughs> that's how john right. waters describes her style at the time but you know that that's the thing though that now that you mentioned that gary that i i made the kind of comparison that like the dreamlanders are almost the mirror universe version of like the manson family where they've got this this cl- a clear leader uh they've they've all got they've got similar I don't want to say similar ideologies, but they had problems with similar things with authority and things like that. But the difference here is that the Dreamlanders will tell John Waters no if they don't want to do something. We talked about that several times in our Pink Flamingos episode. Uh, there are times where they like they're they're not just doing anything John Waters said. He's not like a cult leader here. Like they will say, "Fuck no, I'm not going to smash a television that's turned on with a hammer because it's going to explode on me." You know, so yeah. there are limits. Not setting my head on fire. Not setting Even my me head on wouldn't fire. set her head on fire. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, here's another little uh, little trivia, a little fun fact. There's this quick close-up shot of, of Earl's dick. It's really gross looking, just got sores and stuff all over it. It's a very quick shot. You can't miss it. It's the second dick shot of the movie, actually, I believe. Uh, but apparently, when they shot this insert shot, Divine's actual penis was deemed too small for the scene. So John Waters used a stand-in and Pat Moran's husband, Chucky, volunteered to be the stand-in on this. So Van Smith dutifully applied makeup to Chucky's dong to create this diseased thing that we see on screen. And then Chuck and John went into a back room to get the shot away from prying eyes. So that's how that's Pat Moran's husband's dick that you see on screen in case you were wondering. And it doesn't actually (laughs) look like that, I guess. I mean, that's all makeup effects sure it is uh poor <laughs> poor divide too small for the screen we've all been there right that's me <laughs> and i mean and the camera weighs five uh, adds five pounds right so after they filmed this scene divine while divine was still made up to look masculine they had to shoot the scene where divine uh well where divine fucks himself you guys remember this scene? Uh, so to pull this one off. Um, do I remember it? Will I ever be able to forget it? <laughs> is the question. Well, to pull it off, they had to get a body double with roughly the same build as Divine. And they used a woman named Sally Turner, who was an eccentric Baltimore character actress that fit the bill. Uh, you could actually see Sally as a customer at the beauty salon in the first, or one of the first scenes that set in that location. She kind of looks like Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, she's sitting there in, uh, it's in George Figgs' seat, and they're talking about her bringing her daughter around to the beauty salon, if you remember uh, that scene. Yeah. So that's that's Sally Turner. So she's the one who body doubled for Divine. So they filmed this scene at the local garbage dump, where real-life garbage men watched them from off screen. Uh, as they uh, And I think the mattress was already there at the garbage dump, I believe. <laughs> so well, Sure. Is, yeah. Of course, yeah. Why not get authentic, right? Uh, so they first yeah. filmed the scene with Divine as a man. 
while the double's back was to the camera. She was made up to look like Dawn. And then after they got all the shots they needed, they raced back to Dreamland Studio, which, you know, John's apartment, and they had Van Smith turn Divine back into a woman over the course of three hours. They had to do this all in the same day, which was quite a feat because uh, as several people, uh, when you read about the behind the scenes on this movie, several people point out that Divine was, was quite a hairy man and they had to shave him like head to toe for to turn him back into divine or into dawn for this scene so in addition to being put into his costume wig and makeup they had to shave his body because you know when he's earl he's got eyebrows he's got a five o'clock shadow he's got chest hair he's got arm hair everything they had to get rid of all that mm-hmm. and they had to get it done fast enough so that they could get back to the dump before they had lost daylight because Waters was worried that they wouldn't be able to match up the shots from the two different shoots without doing it on the same day. So with Divine and Drag, they sped back to the dump. Sally was dressed up in the Earl costume, and then they reshot the whole scene from a different angle. So, you know, they'll do anything to get a shot in this movie, basically. I mean, that's Divine's thing. We, She certainly proved that in Pink Flamingos. Uh, you see, Divine mm-hmm. was really... Divine had a not a one track mind, I wouldn't say, but divine was determined to be famous and divine was willing to do just about anything it took to make that happen, which is ironic considering what this movie is about. (laughs) But uh, sometimes, you know, that meant eating dog poop, but it also meant having this incredible work ethic. I mean, everyone who worked with divine mentions that like divine never complained. Divine would be shooting it, you know, it'd be sweating through this, this drag makeup that, that she's wearing. And, never complains is a full professional will will get the shot if it is at all humanly possible and you know compared to especially the other films that divine's made with waters female trouble is an incredibly physical role uh and he agreed to do all of his own stunts in the film i don't know what their other option would have been it's not like they have a stunt department but divine is going to do all of her own stunts on the film and this meant taking, including time. shitting her own pants for <laughs> Earl's. Uh, no, that was actually that was a Van Smith uh, contribution. That was a Van Smith contribution where they were shooting the scene, and he goes, "Hey, hold on, wait a second, I got an idea." And he gets out a candy bar that had started melting. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally what happened, and he just rubbed it on Divine's butt crack while they were filming the scene, and they're like, "All right, now we're ready to go." I hate this. <laughs> So part of what this meant for Divine was uh, she had to actually take trampoline lessons at the local YMCA so that she could believably pull off this nightclub act that's at the end of the film. Uh, and mm. Divine even had his uh, YMCA instructor there to coach him during the filming of this. I got to say, none of the trampoline stunts were anything I wasn't doing as a child on a trampoline, uh, especially during the uh, WWE wrestling matches we would <laughs> yeah. imitate. So I wasn't so impressed. But you're she like, does get the flip in, but she doesn't land it. You were exactly. not a 300 pound man when you were doing that trampoline as divine. Not as yet. <laughs> so the backflip uh, is pretty impressive. The backflip's pretty impressive. I would say. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'll, I'll get, I'll give divine that. Uh, and, and supposedly, you know, like that, that whole stage performance was based on the act that divine was performing at San Francisco's palace theater like that when they were over there before mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the trampoline uh, was part of that act, but other parts of well, it. Well, I was like, going to say divide except the trampoline yeah. part. Uh, but, but because they, they got divide got the trainer because divine was supposedly terrified of breaking your neck, yeah. like during the performance. Like, so they, but got it in one take apparently. Um, so good for, good for, 
her. But uh, but the the whole part about like wheeling in a shopping cart full of mackerel and uh, hurling them at the audience while claiming the, uh, it, it, I guess it, it would it would throw the mackerel at the audience yeah. and claim responsibility for all these crimes. Yeah. Like stuff is weird. Thinking in this, she show. says she she yells that she blew Richard Richard Speck at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. And there's a lot of other like <laughs> what were probably topical crimes at the time that have been largely forgotten that she's also talking about there. I mean, she mentions Abby Hoffman, but the Richard Speck one is anyone who is a fan of true crime. That's one that'll that'll still stand out for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. There's some things that just like uh, stand the test of time, and then water seems to always have like these other things that are, uh, I don't know, very dated yeah. or, or you know, fit in the context of the film. I, I think I and, and I don't know about you, but the whole beauty shops scene, like I didn't quite understand that, but I took it as like maybe there's some jokes here I'm not supposed to get. Like, like what? Uh, what? What parts? I don't know. Just something about the way everybody was exaggerated. I felt like there was. It felt like there was something. Honestly, and I, and I could be way off base. I felt like there was something with uh, maybe gay subculture I didn't know about or something that like it just it seemed like they were trying to make like a, an exaggeration of something particular about. I think it was just that I think it was mostly just place. the uh, that kind of cliche about male hairdressers being flamboyant i think is really all he's doing and then like just cranking that up to 11 especially with butterfly with that like hairdo that butterfly has the thing is like none of the none of the hairdressers in that salon are gay i don't think because you see them i mean paul swift was gay in real life but his you see his character making out with a female client in the chair well and that's the stuff i'm thinking about there's like the weird like making out and there's the you know i I don't know maybe maybe you're right maybe i'm overthinking it but i felt like there was another layer to that that i just didn't get yeah i don't i mean i I can't say there's not but i don't i don't think there is i think it's just john water's weird sense of humor i'll text him (laughs) (laughs) so in another scene divine had to swim across a raging river in full drag uh, this scene is, it's very impressive to me, but this, this scene was filmed, uh, over on Bob Adams land, kind of, kind of near the location where Divine's trailer had been in pink flamingos there in that area. So as they drove to this location, this is when Divine is on the, on the run from the cops after she shoots everyone in the theater, you know, uh, as they drove to that location to film it, it started to rain. But since Divine was already in makeup and costume and they had the whole camera crew assembled, they made the decision to go ahead and shoot the scene anyway, rain or no rain. And the temperature was already near freezing at this point. And as they set up their equipment to get the shot, the rain turned to sleet. So Divine is in full drag, has to make her way to the other side of the river. It's freezing. It's pouring down sleet. Uh, Van Smith was waiting on the other side of the river. She kind of, Van Smith kind of resecured divine's wig to make sure it didn't get swept away by the by the current and then when waters yelled action divine no hesitation just plunged into the river uh but quickly began to panic because as as soon as he jumped in he he immediately felt the undertow pulling him downstream which would have pulled him away from where they were where the camera was not to mention it was very dangerous but you know divine like we said always the professional is going to do anything to get the shot uh, she knew that they needed to get this shot in a single take. There was they they weren't going to be able to redo this. So Divine he, he swims with all his might, and he does manage to hit his mark exactly on the other side of the river, exactly where he was supposed to come out. Because they had these other two actors waiting in like the trees, dressed as cops, that had to come out 
right at that point. So, and Divine does it. One take, gets exactly on the river, exactly where on the riverbank she was supposed to come out at. Uh, as soon as the, you know, the cops ran down, said their line, they called cut, and then the crew cheered on, and they immediately like wrapped Divine in blankets and then took him to a car where they had a heater running so that he could warm up yeah. after being in sub-freezing water. That is uh, nuts, and luckily Divine did not die there. Didn't die, didn't get sick or anything from, from what I understand. So, But yeah, Divine is committed to his craft, absolutely. Nobody can ever say anything about Divine's devotion to, to what he is doing. Uh, but luckily, scenes yeah. like this were few and far between. You know, unlike on Pink Flamingos, where a lot of the filming took place in a freezing cold trailer or outdoors, for female trouble, most of the scenes in the film were shot on indoor sets. So these, uh, the kind of like real world problems that they'd had on Pink Flamingos weren't quite as rampant here. I mean, hell, they even had a dressing room on this one. How about that? They're moving on. What? It was just one. It was one dressing room, one single communal dressing room. But still, at least they weren't like (laughs) spending their time huddling in cars between scenes, hoping that the cops don't raid them. Right. (laughs) Uh, So here's how John Waters uh, describes the dressing room in his book in shock value. He says, Lined with cracked mirrors and decorated with Divine's fake vagina, tits, ass, and pregnant stomach, it could barely contain the hundreds of hideous costumes that had been carefully designed by Van Smith. <laughs> Which is a great, wonderful description. Which you guys, you guys, it sounds like sounds like my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, they don't have like a costume department here, right? Uh, they don't have a makeup department. They've got one guy. They've got Van Smith doing it all. Uh, the actors would just they'd be in this this dressing room and they would just wait in like an assembly line basically while van applied their makeup so we'd do one person's makeup move on to the next he did have people helping them him with like costuming like pat moran would help edith pat moran and three other people would help edith squeeze into like her little leather costumes you know that's why she had to oil up those boobies that's right that's that's how she had to get in there just (laughs) cover it in crisco (laughs) Uh, there were a few other practical locations that they had to shoot on. Uh, they didn't have the budget to have uh, Vince Perano build every single set. So they had to find some places that kind of just fit with what they were looking for for the film. One location that they had to hunt down was a beauty parlor that they could uh, use as the lipstick beauty salon, you know, where the dashers work. A friend of John Waters mentioned to him that her mother owned a beauty sh- shop that was, uh, quote, especially garish. And she took John Waters <laughs> to see it. And he walked in and was just absolutely delighted when he saw this like this all purple exterior uh he knew that this would be perfect for his film it was it was the the exact kind of ugly that he was looking for now this their friend's mother was a little bit reluctant to let them shoot there but she did end up agreeing to it they they were able to shoot there for a few days and they shot there for a few days without incident but then on the last day of shooting they blew some fuses with their lights so it's just you know shouldn't be that big a deal they just changed the fuses uh and they i mean that's, that's what they did they just changed the fuses out but unfortunately they missed the fuse that powered the water heater and during the night Ooh. the fry the pipes froze and burst and flooded the entire salon uh so the, the old uh, friend's mom was probably not very happy about that but john waters did pay for all the damage so you know he he made it right but still yeah this is this is what happens on a low budget movie yeah Uh, One location that proved a little bit harder to find was a church that was willing to let them film Gator and Divine's wedding. Uh, Water started calling around and most of the pastors got nervous as soon as they heard his name. Hello, I'm John Waters. And they're like, 
ooh, okay. <laughs> that all right, like that's gonna sound <laughs> like I'm hanging up, but uh, <laughs> well, if, if that's the thing, if he got to that point once he started explaining the plot of the film, most of them yeah. did just hang up on him. Uh, but after many, many calls, they finally found a pastor who agreed so long as they kept a low profile. So naturally they showed up with like 30 people dressed in full costume, uh, with divine wearing a see-through wedding dress where you can see her fake boobs and pubic hair, uh, -hmm. you know, low profile. Yep. Uh, Edith Massey, Massey is there as well. She's wearing her skin tight leather dominatrix outfit that she wears yes. uh and the pastor was there the pastor apparently was there while they were shooting but he just kind of like locked himself in his office so they kind of like a see no see no evil kind of thing like if i don't see this it's not actually going on right <laughs> uh yeah you you, you kind of mentioned this but it's they said that like literally it took three people just by the way to get edith massey in those leather outfits so <laughs> that is such a so it was just fun to think about um no, I just thought an interesting <laughs> other. I, I thought an interesting other side note here was that uh, apparently years later, John Waters says that he got uh, contacted by a divorce attorney, and it was on behalf of a woman who was trying to validate, get a claim validated that her ex husband, who had uh, supposedly been a church official, had received a substantial sum of money for allowing a pornographic movie to be filmed in his church. Uh, so I, uh, I guess this, uh, pastor or whatever, uh, was going through it anyway, orders <laughs> had to tell them that, uh, well, we did film female trouble, but it was most definitely not a porno and we had not paid anything for that scene to be filmed there. <laughs> they wanted him as like a character witness against the, yeah, against it was like a witness to like, <laughs> yeah, it sounded like the, the wife was like saying like, and he filmed a porno in the church and you know, like just part of those proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think finding a church was tough, finding a prison that would allow them to film the jail scenes in this movie uh, was even harder. Uh, Waters called yeah. every correctional facility in Maryland. They all turned him down, like, without hesitation. Like, as soon as he asked them, they're like, absolutely <laughs> not. Then uh, in desperation, he called the warden of the Baltimore City Jail, kind of expecting the same response. But instead, the answer he got was, sure, you can film here as long as you bring Divine. The warden was a John Waters fan and was a Divine fan. And he was like, you can absolutely film here so long as Divine's going to be in this because he wanted to meet Divine. Uh, so so that's what they did. They, they shot there at the Baltimore jail. I think it was on a unused section of the jail. Uh, but the warden and his wife even stayed to watch the shoot. And they gave Waters, uh, they gave him cell keys. They gave him police props. Really anything that they needed to, to film these scenes, except for an electric chair, uh, Baltimore did not use uh, the electric chair at this point. They used the gas chamber. So Vince Barano had to build that. But uh, everything else, all the other, like, what looks like the the actual, like, prison props were actual items from the city jail. And then after wow. the shoot, the warden said that he hoped Waters would return once the movie was filmed to show it to the prisoners. Pretty awesome, honestly. <laughs> uh, John Waters still has that uh, electric chair uh, that he keeps in his uh, home. My favorite part of this is story, it sitting though, at the table it, or just as like a prop or I, I would put it at the dinner table. <laughs> that makes the most sense. I remember Brett, the hitman heart, uh, the wrestler for those who don't know, uh, also had like a weird electric chair dummy that he just had in his house that you could like turn on and it would like fry the guy or whatever, you know, to be like shaking and screaming. That's like something you can buy at Spirit Halloween now for $400. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
I, I, my favorite part of the whole story, though, is that what makes it even better, because God help me, I looked up the history of the death penalty in Maryland because of some <laughs> offhanded comment from John Waters. Uh, so I went down a rabbit hole there. In 1972, actually, what happened is the Supreme Court had ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. Um, so Maryland had switched to gas in the 60s. But at this point, they were not doing the- any executions there was no death penalty so imagine you're a prisoner there and waters describes they rolled the electric chair and they had to go down the halls past the prisoners (laughs) everyone's just so so they're all in the jail cells and they're yelling like what the fuck they're bringing that back (laughs) just traumatizing these guys (laughs) i thought we were done with this yes Uh, but yeah, and then he tells, he talk. you can find interviews where, where, with him talking about like going back to the prison with his like 16 millimeter film reel and sitting in a room full of prisoners by himself and like just showing the movie yeah. and uh, they're all just like gathered around sitting on these little self-made cushions and they're just watching it. And he said that like the worst things he got were just like, holy shit, you can show us this? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> is this allowed? <laughs> uh, all right, so a couple more onset stories because th- th- there's just a lot of good stories in this movie. I mean, this is the case on a lot of lower budget movies like this. I just think the stories are fun because it shows the type of nerve and ingenuity that you have to put into getting a movie made when you don't have any money. You know, uh, mm. so they're just fun little little uh, stories to tell. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> For instance, one scene that uh, I think, Gary, you referenced earlier, you know, the, the scene where Divine walks down a crowded public street in full drag. They had done that in Multiple Maniacs and in Pink Flamingos. It went over really well with audiences. So they thought, we're going to do this again. Part of the reason that those scenes go over so well is because it's very clear that the onlookers are not extras. They're just actual people on the street. They're shooting this guerrilla style. And the people yeah. reacting to Divine are the actual reactions that they're, that they're giving to Divine. So Waters mm-hmm. decided, hey, let, it's worked twice before. Let's do it again for Female Trouble. So the version of it that he filmed for this movie takes place after Dawn has acid thrown on her face. Uh, so they had to get Van Smith to apply Divine's scar makeup. They squeezed Divine into this, I think it's a purple leopard skin outfit that's got like the one arm that ends in fingernails, you know? It's wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they uh, got Divine dressed up in that. They drove downtown and let Divine out. And Divine started throwing her uh, her glamour fits, you know, uh, just posing for the crowd and and just being generally being divine, you know. But they mm. just were not getting the reaction that they were used to when they had shot these scenes before. So looking back at it, Water said that his best guess was that the shoppers who were on the street were maybe just being too polite, not wanting to gawk at someone who was so obviously disfigured because she's got the scars on her face, so they didn't want to like right, they didn't want to stare. Right. So they tried to move to another area of town where the crowd might be a little more hostile. They passed, they, they moved to this section of town and they passed a group of drunken bums on the side of the street and decided, hey, this is a good place to film this scene. So they start shooting. Divine jumps out of the car, wiggled on past them, and the, the bums, they got the reaction they were looking for. The bums basically leaped up and, and rushed Divine, started grabbing and pawing at Divine, uh, too drunk to realize that the boobs that they were grabbing were just foam rubber. Uh, and Divine, though, Divine gets really <laughs> nervous while they're doing this, uh, wrestled herself free and got back in the car to drive away from this mob of horny bums that, that were attacking her. Uh, they ended up not... Although that seems like it... 
it feels like that would fit in the movie. Yeah, well, J- Waters ended up not using it because they were drunk. He he felt bad using. He felt exploitative by, by using that. You know, because they didn't know they, they were in a movie, and he didn't want them to sober up and see themselves on on a screen acting that way, basically. So, you know, mm. John Waters does make exploitation movies, yes, but he doesn't he doesn't exploit people who are unwilling we should say you know what i mean so right, he felt yeah. that he felt that it was just morally wrong to include them in the film so he got rid of that footage no that makes sense yeah one scene that they had to push to the very end of the shoot was the one where divine gives birth to to taffy newborn taffy uh waters wanted a real newborn baby for this scene uh and since susan lowe was pregnant you can tell she, you can see in her scenes in the beauty salon she is very very pregnant in those scenes. He he basically asked her if he could use her baby. He's like, "Hey, once you have that baby, you mind if I borrow it for a scene?" And she agreed to it. <laughs> she was down for it, and uh, she managed to shoot all of her scenes in the beauty salon before going into labor. I think she was like, the baby was late, so she was like ten months pregnant. I think when she when she finally had that baby. But once she did, she gave birth. Uh, once they get out of the hospital, mother and son arrive back to the house. Uh, John Waters and his crew all show up on the scene uh, or show up at the house to shoot the scene. And the the scene is, by the way, just at Susan Lowe's apartment, like Divine's home that you see. And if you watch the movie, you can tell this. It is literally just a hallway in Lowe's house where she stored like her vacuum cleaner and stuff. (laughs) Susan Lowe's mother-in-law, who she had never met, by the way, had come over to England to meet her new grandchild around the same time. So Susan Susan Lowe's mother, meet, imagine you're meeting your mother-in-law for the first time. She's come over all the way from England to meet her new grandchild, shows up at your house, and John Waters and Divine are there shooting this scene. <laughs> so you can imagine, uh, you can imagine what's going on through her head. Like she looks around at her daughter-in-law who she just met, at her house and there's just all these just fucking weirdos around <laughs> about to film god knows what with her newborn uh-huh. grandchild so she's a little skeptical here what I, I can't even imagine what the 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 person who was that baby thinks about it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think John, he still lives in Provincetown or in Baltimore, I think. I think John Waters said he still sees him pretty regularly. Same with the baby from Pink Flamingos, who was Cookie Muller's baby. He said that he's he still talk, he still sees him around town pretty regularly. And they're, they're just like, it's just like a thing that happened when they were a baby, you know? Nice. So they go to shoot the scene. Divine's laying on the couch in curlers. Uh, and Van Smith takes the baby and covers it in fake blood, shoves him up Divine's dress, and then connected them with a fake umbilical cord that they had made out of condom stuffed with liver. So they shot the scene. You see, you, you see Divine. She shrieks in pain, lifts the baby from her crutch, and then bites through the umbilical cord and spits it against the wall. All, all while off camera, Susan Lowe's mother-in-law is she's watching all this happen. <laughs> <laughs> the things they do to the parents of these poor people. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> You, you mentioned, like, I mean, David Lockery's mom being there. I think his brother was in the jury scene. Yeah. And then uh, I think the mom of, like, Vince Paradio and uh, Ed Paradio, uh, that they were in the jury, too. Yeah. So, yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, just 
kind of nuts. Uh, you're talking about all these fun, like little side things. I mean, they, there's scenes from this movie, which surprised me, but uh, John Waters talks about, uh, he finally cut stuff from the movie. Uh, he said, so, so it would be Oscar bait. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's like, there's scenes where like, uh, there's one where like, Mink stole like stuffs a mailbox uh, full of trash, which is actually a federal a federal crime. offense. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were like, ah, oh, we, we should probably we should cut yeah. that. <laughs> um, there's a scene where like Cookie and the other girl like come in and try to break divide out in the courtroom scene, and they come in with guns and masks. They get killed, right? And they get killed. Yeah, yeah. which is why and you never die. see them for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they, they were killed funny. in a deleted it, scene. Yeah, you don't even think about it, but yeah, they they just kind of disappear after a while. But uh, uh, there's like a whole scene with like like Aunt Ida and Gator like faking like she's in an iron lug or something, basically, or something. <laughs> not 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 an iron lug, but it's like uh, she's you know sick and in bed and like plastic around her and all this stuff. But uh, um, and they uh, there's one scene like just one like little simple scene with like divided a bubble bath. I saw like a clip of and. John Waters said, we, we just cut this because Divide looks like a drag queen in a bubble bath. <laughs> and like, and, uh, so they're like, Divide was like anti that. Like Divide was like being everything that other drag queens kind of hated at yeah. the time. You know, he was like, Divide would go to like these balls for drag queens with like a chainsaw and scars all over himself, you know, <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, it was like Divide was like doing all this weird stuff that drag the drag queens at the time would find like disgusting. Like he mentioned, he he actually mentioned uh, the wedding scene, talking about like you know like a wedding dress with like showing full bush. That was unheard of. <laughs> that was cutting edge, especially now that bush is a thing of the past. He said, <laughs> he said as a, as an I remember the interview was like as an animal rights activist. Now that Bush is gone, I'd like to know what happened to crabs. Like, where did they go? <laughs> uh, now, about the title, uh, Female Trouble. This uh, Originally, Waters had written the movie under the working title, Rotten Mind, Rotten Face, which admittedly is a great title. Uh, but as he started making it, he got kind of nervous that, uh, that, that maybe some of the snarkier critics out there would try to get clever and write a headline for their review saying rotten mind, rotten face, rotten movie. So he decided to change it. He didn't want to get, he didn't want to make it that easy on him, you know, Mm. Uh, as for where the title uh, female trouble came from. So a while back, long before they made this movie, cookie Mueller had mysteriously collapsed and she had to be rushed to the hospital. So John found out, he goes to visit his friend there and he asked her what happened. And her response was, Oh, it's just female trouble, hun. He just loved that kind of old-fashioned term, female trouble, that old-fashioned ter- turn of phrase. So he kind of mm. just kept it locked away for future use. So when he uh, decided to come up with a new title for this movie, he kind of it found that that title was fitting. <laughs> well, when it came time to premiere Female Trouble, Waters once again rented the auditorium at the University of Baltimore, just as he had done on Pink Flamingos. Then he and his crew of Dreamlanders repeated the same guerrilla marketing campaigns that, that had worked for them in the past, plastering the city of Baltimore with posters and flyers. Uh, the poster, which is it's a, it's a really great looking poster, it features the divine pseudo punk look from the last part of the film where she's got the mohawk, you know, uh, with a tagline that says she had a lot of problems. Also a great <laughs> tagline. Uh, so the press release, they sent a press release out to promote this. And uh, it, it said, 
quote, if the if this film was rated, it would probably receive an R minus. Wow. So they're leaning into this, you know. Uh, yeah. This is probably a good time to mention, since we talked about the rating, the Maryland ratings board again. Uh, we talked, Gary, I think you talked about them pretty at length in the last episode, right? Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. At the time of both Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, Maryland actually had the last remaining censor board in the U.S. Uh, and when you talked about it, you mentioned this woman, Mary Avara. She was the head of the censor board, and she had a particular dislike of John Waters. So before the big, yeah, he, uh, he he made he made her mouth taste bad. <laughs> That's what she said, right? Uh, yeah, just the name right. John Waters was disgusting to her. Yeah. So before his big premiere, big world premiere of Female Trouble, Waters personally took the film to the ratings board to have them view it. He wanted to prevent any delays, make sure that his movie got to premiere at the time it was supposed to premiere. Uh, so at the screening for the censor board, Avara told Waters that he'd have to make some cuts. He argued, he said, there's nothing obscene about this film at all. She disagreed, of course, and explained that she had received several complaints that she hadn't cut the dog poo scene from Pink Flamingos. Because she had, when they premiered Pink Flamingos, they had cut stuff out. They cut out the chicken fuck scene, the butthole scene. They, they cut out several things that they deemed obscene, but they didn't cut out the dog poop scene. Uh, and she had gotten complaints from people about that, I guess. So mm. she didn't want to <laughs> run into that again. So that she was pretty hard on them. And they end up... In the end, they ended up just having to cut one scene, or rather one second from one scene. Uh, it's a very quick scene in the film where Divine finds Gator in bed with another woman. The woman in question happens to be sitting on his face at the time. Uh, and Waters, you know, he had to explain to the censor board, he's like, this is fully simulated. Like, this is not pornography. There's nothing really happening. This is fully simulated. But they insisted, uh, finally conceding that uh, the, uh, Mary Avara actually told John Waters that she he said she can sit there, but she can't move. <laughs> so he had to. <laughs> so John was forced to cut the scene, uh, twenty four frames. He had to cut one second out, and he literally had to cut it there while he was at the rating board screening. They handed him a pair of scissors, and made him cut this like expensive print that he had had made, and yeah. cut it with a pair of scissors uh, that he had huh. to like kind of clumsily splice together later on so uh but that was the only way he was going to get the censor board seal that was required for him to be able to screen the film publicly and then at the premiere when they showed it at the university the audience booed when they saw the censor board seal at the beginning of it yeah <laughs> yeah and i feel like he said in one interview they still had that uh snippet i want to say he said i he think gave it's it the criterion i think it's in I the didn't... criterion i think it's i think it's cut back into the film uh, because oh okay, I, I right. think it's cut back into the film because that scene in question, you know, uh, Avara said she can she can sit there but she can't move. In the scene in the version I watched, she definitely is moving. So I think that they, okay, I so think that maybe they, they just I think they cut it back into it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So, of course, there was a lot of pressure for Female Trouble to perform well after the runaway success of Pink Flamingos. Uh, the premiere itself was a great start. Uh, Waters once again sold out all nine showings of the film. Uh, he made back actually a substantial amount of the film's budget before New Line even started distributing it nationally. He'd already made a lot of his money back. And for their part, New Line really got behind the film. Uh, they blew it up to 35 millimeters so that they could play it in bigger theaters that didn't have the ability to, pr to project in 16 millimeter. Uh, they gave it a big, it actually had a big red carpet premiere in New York City. Uh, and despite the premiere taking place during a, a really bad snowstorm, it, the premiere was a big success. 
Unfortunately, though, outside of its premiere, the movie kind of came and went. Um, New Line, I, I think from what I you know have read and what I kind of have gathered is that New Line seemed to try to push it towards more mainstream moviegoers rather than marketing it towards the midnight crowd that had thrown their weight behind Pink Flamingos, which I think may have been a mistake. I mean, I, I think that this should have been marketed towards towards the the midnight crowd honestly yeah absolutely, uh, absolutely. yeah i mean because that's who that's who it was made for i mean john waters yeah he wanted his movies playing in art house theaters but you have a built-in audience that's who you should be going for the crowd that saw pink flamingos is not the same crowd that's going to see a matinee on a thursday afternoon you know uh i actually right. i found a really great quote from divine here that i think is is fitting for for this situation divine said we do not make movies for most film goers we make them for all the fuck-ups. And as a fuck-up, I think that is exactly what everybody wants to see. So Divine knew, John Waters knew, who this movie was made for. Uh, New Line was, I think, just trying to shoot a little higher than they, they probably needed to on this film. And when they should have just booked it the same way that they had booked Pink Flamingos, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, reviews from critics on the film were a little bit mixed, but isn't that always the case with a John Waters movie? Uh, like <laughs> like that quote just said, these films are not made for just everyone. Variety called it a true original and went on to say that, uh, quote, film purists, establishment critics, and ordinary folks will shudder, which is another good argument for not releasing it the way that they did. Mm -hmm. uh, the Village Voice called it an epic John Waters' masterpiece. But then there were some dissenters, uh, the Soho News, they said, uh, quote, you don't want to sit too close to the screen for fear of being swept into the hideous narcissistic death trap that they inhabit. Uh, or the New York Post, who was particularly mean, saying, if you ever see John Waters' name on a marquee, cross to the other side of the street and hold your nose. Oof. My favorite, personally, is uh, Rex Reads that uh, says, where do these people come from? Where do they go when the sun goes down? Isn't there a law or something? Uh, I think they actually ended up using that on the uh, like poster. As they and, should, yeah. Uh, I mean, plus it's from Rex yeah, Reed. And like on the a, DVD or something. Like Rex Reed is a very well-established <laughs> critic, but also always kind of a snobby, that guy. Always kind of snobby. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like Rex Reed, to me, might have needed a nap, Gary. Oh, Justin, you are so right, as do many people on the internet. <laughs> I will say this, though, not as bad a reviews as you'd expect to see for this one. I mean, not as many. Well, I think I, I, I... Not not like Pete Flamingos. I don't know if... Um, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show or just, just to you guys off mic... But if you pull this one up on Letterboxd, Female Trouble is the highest rated John Waters movie on Letterboxd. I can believe huh. that. Higher than um, higher than Hairspray and Crybaby, which seem to be the more popular. But really, but as far as like like average rating, this is the highest. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I I will. Well, we'll we'll talk about it more our, our opinions later. But let's talk about some people who were not happy after they watched this movie. <laughs> Uh, how about a half star from Emily Russell, who says the most unstable Christmas movie I've ever seen. Maybe if she got her black cha-cha heels, it would have ended differently. It would have. Her, her entire life would have gone on a different trajectory. Just buy her the cha-cha right. heels, man. Uh, how about Dan, who says their review title, by the way, 
this is officially the worst movie ever. Yeah! Hey. We did it. All right. There is absolutely no point in showing it. It is disgusting, and it is complete trash. I honestly cannot imagine why this film gets such good ratings. Why, people? Why? Lots of question marks <laughs> after both of those. <laughs> that person hasn't seen enough movies, I don't think. That's what it sounds yeah. like to me. We can do worse. Uh, John Waters does worse. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hadasaka. What? A fantastical... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, a fantastical piece of self-indulgent display on the part of John Waters and the entire cast. And what's not been picked up on is what this movie is all about. It's core trouble. It's being a grandiose presentation of a misogynist portrayal of women. Females are consumed by vanity to oversized proportions. They have shallow values that are driven by petty selfishness. Don't sit down with a bag of popcorn to watch this monstrosity. You'll either gag while eating or feel compelled to hurl pieces of the popcorn at the screen. This movie is recommended only for those that are gluttons for punishment. I'm not sure I agree with their uh, reading of the film, but we'll get into that later. Uh, this I, I like this review, and so I had to include it because, well, you'll see. But this is from Dave Jones. So either the lead singer, the uh, monkeys, or David Bowie, before he changed his name. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to read it in a British accent, I guess. He says, Spaghetti scene? Yeah, when I was the poet laureate at this dumb boarding school, New England, waiting on senior table, because I, low-life freshman, everyone hated, hit from the Midwest, got glorious fights, and loved it. Someone lost, who cares? Anyways, we brought in this big bowl of gross spaghetti, low-life punk senior, got it up, dumped the spaghetti on me head. Hits, moi, jumped upon the table, then rolled around kicking every motherfucker food garbage everywhere. One star, man, you guys were the coolest. Will Hurst, where you now, mate? Now? No, well, it wasn't you. Fuck you. <laughs> well, and that is a legitimate well, review. How did, what, did, what did that have to do with the movie? <laughs> that was a review on uh, IMDb. Oh, so, yeah. gentleman seems Thank confused. You. Needs a nap. He does. Yeah. <laughs> not, be, not necessarily because of this movie, but. Uh, and gave it one half star. Says uh, pedophilia, abuse of children in other ways, and violence against women isn't funny, even when it's presented as, it's presented as black comedy. I didn't even watch the whole movie. I couldn't take any more of this kind of damaging, unfunny nastiness. My favorite kind of reviews. Yep. <laughs> Nat gave it a half star and says, I have no idea what I just watched. Nothing about this movie was enjoyable. I found the visuals disgusting and often felt disturbed the longer it went on. The plot wasn't engaging and I hated every character in the movie. While watching, I completely forgot to pay attention to the camera work because there was nothing interesting about it. It felt like it only existed for the shock value of making a movie so grotesque. Usually, I always have something to say about a film, whether good or bad. Usually, I can enjoy when a bad movie is on. But for this, I have no words. Absolutely speechless. I would Those were a lot of words that. for... Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of words for speechless Nat. Here is uh, Anna, who gave it a half star. If the film's intention is to destroy pleasure, consider it achieved. 
the only moments I found myself laughing were because I was shocked and uncomfortable. You can definitely feel the film's low budget. The acting is laughable, save for the main star of the show. The extremely dark elements of comedy were the worst parts. The vulgar gore and explicit plot elements are mostly played for laughs. The worst example of this was Taffy's character. She is beaten and ridiculed throughout her entire childhood and is sexually assaulted by her own father, whom she murders. When she finally escapes her mother by joining the Krishna movement, she is strangled to death. I also found the scene when Don gets acid thrown on her to be particularly disturbing, given that in reality, transgender men and women still experience acid attacks. To see it here played for absurdist comedy is just disrespectful. I was most excited for the end of the movie because that meant I it was over and I could go home. There's a lot to unpack in that one that... <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to tackle right now <laughs> that'll be in our bonus episode <laughs> let's take that one line by line <laughs> yeah it's uh it's rough I, I was with her at first because she just said everything's played for laughs yeah but that, the stuff at like, the yeah, end yeah that's kind of the point yeah exactly i mean that it is and and laughing because you're shocked at something is exactly what john waters is trying to do and the acid attack thing that she's talking about at the end is like that's not a trans character or a trans actor. It is yeah, a, a female point. that happened to be happens to be played by a male actor, but there's like, I, I don't know that that argument doesn't hold up at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we'll end on Nate who gave it a half star. Apparently this movie's idea of funny is people screaming at the top of their lungs, child abuse and rape. It relies completely on shock humor. Only there's no humor. It's just people screaming at each other for an hour and a half, abusing each other, and a lot of explicit rape. Watch this for a college class, and I've enjoyed most movies we've watched for college, but this one is one of the worst films I've ever seen, period. What's remotely enjoyable or funny about a drunk father explicitly taking out his penis on camera to rape his daughter? Apparently that's comedy. Pretty much the only thing about this movie is that the camera is in focus and you can see the images clearly. The camera work isn't completely atrocious, even though it's filmed like a sitcom. Good job, focus puller. Good job focusing on that drunk father's dick as he rapes his daughter. I love unconventional weird movies, but this is the way to do it completely incorrectly. The cinematic equivalent of cancer. Oh, yeah. And it is with a pointless shooting that's meant to be funny. If you want to do offensive humor, actually make it some sort of satire or have something clever. None of this is clever. Well, those folks uh, need a nap. Did not love the film. Uh, But, you know, one audience who, who did love the film was the one at the Baltimore City Jail that we mentioned earlier. Uh, because after the movie premiered, John Waters kept his promise to the warden. He did hold a screening there at the jail where a lot of the movie's later scenes had been filmed and the audience of prisoners loved it. Uh, they cheered at all the violent scenes or at, they cheered at the shit stains on Divine's underwear in that one scene. <laughs> they, they just, they seem to really enjoy it. <laughs> Granted, it was probably because they don't get to see a lot of movies. Uh, and, you know, it's cool seeing a movie that was filmed where in my house, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they uh, they did get awfully quiet during the execution scene, John Waters said. So they, yeah, they got a little yeah. quiet during that one, but they still applauded at the end. And then after its premiere, after this premiere, I should say, uh, Waters received what he called the best review he had ever gotten when one of the prisoners, who was a convicted murderer, told him, 
hey, brother, you ought to show this film down at the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital for the Criminally Insane. I think they'd like it better. <laughs> so... <laughs> Is it, are we we're keeping track? I think that's two people who have said he's crazy. <laughs> the other one being Tex Watson. Yeah, the other one two, convic- two convicted murderers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, is it you? You are nailing it when two convicted murderers are like, I don't yeah, know, yeah. this yeah. guy's, this guy's out there. Like one co- one convicted murderer tells you you're crazy. You take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but uh, two, shame on me. <laughs> all right, so uh, this is the point in the show where I need to ask Todd what he thought about female trouble. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I feel like so, you're just dying to get something out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I. I. I really have been making an effort, and I hope you guys see it. I hope the listeners see it. That I really am trying to approach these things very uh, positively, uh, with an open mind. Uh, but here we are, three films in, and I, in looking at everything, and of course in reading the notes, you know, and following along here on the show, I feel like it's getting a little bit tougher to defend john waters as a good filmmaker and i have some examples so he's always had a hard time to get money well at this point andy warhol offered to finance now i know he didn't want andy warhol's name on it negotiate that's what you do (laughs) so uh he got the university's uh tech department didn't think to mine the theater department for some actors um And at this point, like his whole vibe has just been kind of like, you know, look at us. We're so weird. This is the counterculture. This is, this is all these things. But here specifically with this film, we see him caring about what the critics have to say. So he changed the title. We see him physically in the room, cutting out a scene or cutting out a second of, of footage based on what the censors are saying. Well, so he, he had he to, or he, the critics are saying, he would have, he cares about what the censors. He could not legally like, show the film without cutting that out. That has not stopped him before. <laughs> like, no, it's been showing it. He, he, did places, the, man. he did the same thing on pink flamingos. He had to cut, he had to cut several scenes out of pink flamingos to be able to show it. He's he, well, John waters is a businessman. That's the thing. John waters might make very transgressive art, but John Waters, his father, you remember his father was a very successful businessman who who had a, a who made pretty good money. And John Waters learned a lot from him. One thing about John Waters is despite like the content of some of his films, the man knows how to build a brand and he knows what's smart for business. I I I, I don't see how. Because I, I mean if you're if you are make if you are concerned about these things, then take the money. If you got the you got the equipment for free, why not get the actors for free from the university? Well, here's like, the thing: like these take, are smart business decisions. No, it's not taking money from Andy Warhol would have been a terrible career move for John Waters because forever going forward, he would be fully associated with Andy Warhol and not as John Waters, not as his own brand. Go look at the career of Paul Morrissey. I don't, I don't know, I don't Go know look at the that. career of Paul Morrissey. The only films of Paul Morrissey's that anybody talks about are the ones with Andy Warhol's name on them. Nobody gives a shit about anything else he did because they're not associated with the factory. And the same thing would have happened to John Waters had he done that. The, I mean, did he have much of a career before Andy Warhol? He's still building his career here. Or are you talking about Paul, Paul Morrissey? Yeah. No, Paul, Paul, Morrissey. Paul Morrissey got his start with Andy Warhol. 
See, I, I feel like John Waters set himself apart before Andy Warhol offered to bankroll him. I, I think if he had if he had joined Andy Warhol, he would be forever associated with Andy Warhol. Everyone who ever worked with Andy Warhol was forever associated with them. Even the Velvet Underground album, which Andy Warhol all Andy Warhol had jack shit to do with because it had his name on it. People thought that it was Andy Warhol's band. For I mean, years. you know, again, if he's a good businessman, negotiate. Hey, hey, man, you, you, don't you know, I'll make you a producer or whatever. I don't think you. Like, I don't think you understand much about Andy trouble. Warhol. That's not how Andy Warhol works. <laughs> Very true. I'll I'll admit that I clearly don't. Um, but yeah, just all of these things. I feel like, and I feel like it's it's ramping up. But we're kind of just waiting to see this. It's it, we're watching NASCAR. We're watching this thing go at 200 miles an hour, just waiting for something terrible to happen. So it's, I, I can't, I, it's getting harder and harder for me to be like, yay. <laughs> well, I mean, because- at the time and in context of where he's at, I mean, I would say that he's profited pretty heavily. Yeah. In, in oh yeah. I, for Justin, what, you, what he's done each time. Yeah. Yeah. We pointed it out very clearly earlier in the episode, like his budget is doubling like with each thing essentially, or close to it. So, I mean, he's doing something right, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, what was her name that went and took classes, uh, went and took some ballet classes and you can see it made a difference in her, in her posture and in, in her presence on camera. I noticed that hell I noticed that like, yeah. And there were these other opportunities that I just mentioned of like, you know, let's, let's populate this thing with some people who know how to read a script and deliver a line. Well, I know you want to work with your friends. Tell- you didn't appreciate like, that. Edith, a- that Edith was there in the birdcage and she it. wasn't staring off into space and mouthing the lines <laughs> of the other actors while they were talking. Not saying get rid of those people, but like, can you balance it out a little bit more? Well, that's, I mean, I mean that's what you're going to see happen go forward. Like the, these dreamlanders all work for John waters through his entire career, but you do see them take on smaller and smaller roles as he starts to get bigger and bigger stars available to him. But he's not at that point yet, man. I mean, getting, first of all, your argument that he could just raid the theater department at the university of Baltimore. One, we don't know that they have a theater department. Uh, Two, they, there's no guarantee that the theater department is going to be uh, willing to let them use their actors for free. Like they're able to use the stuff in the film department. Uh, and again, this is a collaborative effort for him. I mean, these are his, yeah. n- these are not just his friends. These are his creative collaborators. Uh, this group of people who he's been making art with for over a decade now. So he's not mm-hmm. just going to like kick them to the curb uh, yeah. for some college students who may or may not be any better. <laughs> you know, well, like and, and again, like in reading the stuff about them, you know, well, David Lockery seemed to be the most vocal, but I, I imagine if there, if he was, he probably wasn't the only one bitching about money of like, well, hell these kids will do it for a credit on their resume. So yeah, here's, here's 25% we're so that we can keep your, working and being friends. But you're creating <laughs> scenarios that we don't know could have ever existed. You're, you're right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. We can't yeah. just like rewrite history and say that it should have been done this way. We don't even know that that was ever an option. That's a good point. I see that all the time in, uh, 
and pro wrestling, which I'm sure John Waters is a huge fan <laughs> of. No. But people always have ideas of like the storyline of the way things should have gone. But you don't know also what was going on behind the scenes. You don't know exactly the details. Right. So it's just kind of unrelated. But, you know, if somebody gets injured or something happens or whatever, something has to change last minute or whatever. You know, so I, I see Justin's point that you're assuming there are scenarios available to him that may not have actually been available right. to him. So right, right. we're assuming he's just, it's, it's kind of saying he's making bad decisions when those he might have actually chosen the best possible decision for Well, and let's situation. be clear, John Waters has been making movies for 50 years, so clearly he was making decisions that helped his career. Just because you didn't like the movie doesn't mean that it hurt the movie or hurt his career, because his movies continue to get bigger from here on. Uh, well, I'm talking about, like, from what we've seen to now. This, that, right, that, but, I'm but you're, not you're talking about down the road. You're but, implying that the decisions that he's made here hurt the film or hurt his career when that's clearly not the case. I mean, again, this is the, the highest rated film in his filmography and it is just another stepping stone towards him becoming a little bit more mainstream further down the line. So he's clearly not making decisions that are detrimental to his career. It's, it's tough because I I see what, I mean, I see what you're saying, Todd. Like I, I hear you. I, (laughs) I, None of these people are amazing actors. Uh, not there's, and there's, and the movies are so weird. It's hard to understand exactly how they they work. Uh, I I struggle to I I. But I will say this: this is the first John Waters movie so far in this series that I've been like, I might put that on sometime. Like, uh, you know, like I really it might be on in the background somewhere, or you know, while I'm doing some stuff like and I and I say that I, that sounds almost disrespectful to John Waters, who seems like a great guy. I just mean. Multiple maniacs and peak flamingos were so over the top and weird that like I, I can't imagine just wanting to see multiple maniacs or just wanting to see pink flamingos uh, outside of a crowd of people, like I said, on flamingos like it seems like a good fun like we're we're screening a movie at a at a place and we're going to show pink flamingos you know right or something like that because it's going to get a great reaction it's going to be fun to see what other people do when they see it um i i feel like female trouble is like the it is is by far the most well-made John Waters movie so far. Oh, absolutely. And oh yeah, it's, don't, it is don't actually me, don't a coherent. It's a it's a it's a movie. Yeah. It's a real yeah. movie. I feel yeah. like. Awesome. Also, so I, I'll definitely agree with that. It it you know, and Justin did such a great job citing all of these things. Yeah, the camera works better. The sounds better. It there it is getting better. I just wonder, uh, and, and you're absolutely right, Justin, you pointed out, I, I'm, I'm coming up with scenarios in my head of just kind of like, well, if you got this, why, you know, anyways, I'm playing the what if game, which is a terrible way to approach things. But, um, but yeah, I, it's, yeah, I can see that it is clearly, again, based on the three films that we have covered so far, this is definitely of the highest, highest technical quality and uh you know justin you and i talked earlier this week um about it being um i think you had said it's very quotable as i you know it's no secret i you know pull from quotes to put my stuff in the script in the in the notes here 
and just going back and just reading through some of these, I was like, yeah, that, yeah, this is super quotable. I it's wouldn't very, suck I, your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. Is one of the yeah. best lines in <laughs> a movie. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Like, uh, there's I, there's I just, quite a few that eli- that elicit laughs. And to be honest, like, and I've I, I haven't pulled punches on this before. Like, comedy has a short shelf life for something you know written uh, forty years ago. Nope, now, fifty years next year. Fifty years ago. Yeah. I, you know, for it to still, you know, elicit laughter, although be it maybe like nervous and awkward laughter, but laughter nonetheless, I, I think says something to it. It's, it's, I, if I have to, if I have to thumbs up or thumbs down, I have to go thumbs down, but like, I see the progression. I see it getting better. Trying to be positive here. <laughs> as, I, much I as, like... as much as I honestly can. <laughs> I, I, I watched this movie and I was, I, I mean, I guess, again, it just depends on the the window. And I keep saying context of, the, the, where, of where you're viewing it. I was impressed by this movie. Yeah. I was, I was like in the, in the scheme of John Waters so far, I was like, holy shit. Now, John Waters is not my favorite filmmaker yet or ever. I don't know. We'll see. But he is, he is definitely not right now. But... I could see people seeing this movie and thinking like, like other, like import more important people than me seeing this movie and being like, wait a minute, there's, there's something else here. This guy is, he's got staying power and he's still going and he's only getting better. Like this is, uh, this is pretty cool. Like this is, there's something to this kid, John waters. That's, that's making these movies. And he's sticking I, to I his guns. That. You know, he's making, movies that are distinctly like John Waters movie could not be made by anybody else. Yeah. This is by far my favorite John Waters movie for whatever, whatever that accounts for. Well, I mean, John Waters has gone on record several times to say that female trouble is his favorite of his early, of all the divine vehicles. Uh, I don't know if he includes hairspray in there because divine's more of a supporting role. So I wouldn't call it a divine vehicle, but he said that it's this is his favorite of the divine vehicles. So this is his favorite of his earlier films, uh, and and it's easy to see why. Because while you know this may not be his most technically advanced film, uh, there is a clear jump in quality from his previous films. I mean, it's very obvious from the opening credits. The opening credits uh, automatically look like more professional than the other films have. It's not just yeah. him too, Justin. It's it's like uh, sorry to cut you off, but it's it's also the actors. Like yeah. I feel like all of the Dreamlanders are more comfortable. They're all here better than they have been. Yeah, uh, anywhere else. Yeah, I mean David Lockery it still feels much more natural. Now they're all heightened the, these performances because that's there. This is a heightened reality that he's creating. So having heightened performances uh, makes sense, you know. Uh, but. It's it like David Lockery is one that I especially noticed in this. Like his dialogue comes across much more naturally. Like it doesn't feel like he's reciting lines as much as he did in Pink Flamingos, you know. Right. Uh, right. And this, I mean, from a thematic standpoint, female trouble kind of feels like John Waters' magnum opus. You know, this is. I feel like this is where we see all of his obsessions on screen coalescing in just like a singular vision. one, I think it was the new art in Los Angeles. And they did like a John Waters retrospective years ago and they called female trouble, John Waters citizen Kane, which if you think about, <laughs> if you think about the 
structure of female trouble. I mean, Holy since, shit. I guess you could. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about the structure <laughs> of female trouble, it is very similar. I mean, not beat by beat, but as far as like a movie that basically is encompassing uh, the main character's entire life, the rise and fall of Charles Foster Kane, whereas at the end he dies a lonely man. Spoilers. Uh, at the end of this, of course, she has reached the height of her fame, Don Davenport have, and, and dies for her art. Uh, so you, you could, at least he didn't spoil what Rosebud was. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I would never. <laughs> uh, I mean, Waters has a he has a clear affinity towards marginalized people, whether they're marginalized by sexuality, gender, race, or in many cases, simply because they don't conform to what's deemed normal by society. That goes back to that quote that you said earlier, Gary, where he just like, he they make movies for outsiders because that's who they are. Outsiders for a variety of reasons, whether you're it's because you're gay, whether it's because you're black. I mean, that's something that he's going to tackle down the line in Hairspray, you know, is... is uh, I don't even know if I, if I express the right emphasis in that quote, too, because what he was saying was, he was like, the crazy gays love us, and the normal gays don't even care that much. He was like, we're like the minority in the minority Right, the groups. outsiders of the <laughs> outsiders, yeah. <laughs> um, but because he is so... He does have this clear love of marginalized people. It's very... It, it can be easy to sentimentalize those aspects of his work, I think, but... Uh, I mean, there's nothing, but there's nothing sentimental about female trouble. I mean, this is a wicked, biting satire. I think uh, that it really mercilessly takes down this whole like American ideal of like fetishizing violence, uh, American narcissism, uh, our obsession with fame. You know, uh, and to think this movie was made fifty years ago. Uh, so, like, when you think of it in that in that context, it's like, wow, um, it's the same now or worse. We've gotten worse about it, you know, about the idea of like making people famous just for the sake of them being famous. I, I literally, dude, I was watching this and it was the, either I'm getting smarter at, because of this show or I'm, uh, just getting dumber. I don't know which one it is. Uh, no, it's, 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 uh, but, or, or John Waters is getting better as an artist, but I was watching this f- film and thinking of like reality, TV reality TV, and, social media, where people are doing yes. dumb, dumb challenges on TikTok, where each one has to be more outrageous than the one before, just so they can get their 15 minutes of fame. I mean, before yeah. we started recording, I was talking about how stupid these pinky doll videos on TikTok are. Uh, and sh- that girl's becoming famous over doing the dumbest shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's it and it's it, it it is it is about chasing that that fame at any cost and uh what do you do where you gotta fuck up your face or murder somebody mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. else you know just to be to be famous it's so weird it's it's like i i he he has this movie now out of all these we've watched so far that's like it's got these themes that like i immediately was like all right i got this yeah. I'm, I'm tracking what you're doing and uh you know and, I, and i'm not saying like everybody has to dumb it down so that i understand it but i mean i feel like this is a really accessible well it's clear it's clear what he's trying to satirize is what it is he's very clear with his uh with with what he's going for i mean one of its one of the movie's very many quotable lines was when dawn is uh, she's auditioning to the dashers to Mm. be in their salon and she says um, you know, I'm Don Davenport. I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and I'd like to be famous. And that's that's it. She just 
She doesn't want to create art. She doesn't want to bring anything meaningful to society. She just wants to be famous. It's like she's a fucking Kardashian. You know, like she just wants to be famous for the sake of being famous, not for actually contributing anything. Uh, so, I mean, what female trouble is, is it, it's a, it's an incredibly dark comedy about the length that someone will go for that 15 minutes of fame. But it's also a critique of the audience that demands increasingly salacious content, you know, as, yeah. because Don's acts of criminality get, they, they, they crescendo until she's committing actual mass murder and starts firing a gun into a crowd. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny too. I was, uh, I was thinking about how, well, I, you know, like I've said, I love Mink Stoll. So I, I track her characters a lot because I just want to see what's happening with her. What's she up to? I just like her. And, uh, her characters was it Taffy. Taffy. Uh, is, you know, there, there was one of the, the, somebody needs a nap that I read that they were very disappointed about the arc of Taffy that like, she's just abused and beaten and just goes to her father and fucked up there. And then just ends up dying at the end, basically. And that's the end of Taffy. And I too was watching this movie and be like, wow, what a shitty character arc for somebody. And then I was like, well, you know, everybody's life's not perfect. I guess there's that. Also, it's not her story. It's not, it's not, and so I'm like, I could see that that's a, cause, cause they even saw an interview with John Waters where he was talking about that scene with, uh, and Ida and Gator, like where they're faking her being more sick than she is. Mm -hmm. And it's like, cause somebody from the government's coming by and just to check on her to make sure they get their money or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're like, wow, you cut that out. And this is all the criteria, I think. But the guy's like, what made you cut that? And he was just like, subplot too far. He was like, this is, he's like, we got to keep this thing moving with the main story, like what this is about. And basically, even he there was talking about that, that like, okay, we, we gave them another scene, but the story ain't about them, essentially. And so we need to, we need to keep it moving with the person that we're following. And uh, I don't know. And I, I started to see like John, John Waters is even thinking about that as yeah, a filmmaker. Yeah. yeah as, and as an editor. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I just, uh, I appreciated that about it. I really do. <laughs> I really do want to be positive and I don't want to be, no, the guy dude, you should stick to your guns. You should always stick to your guns. I don't want you to, it's yeah. this, this fucking show is boring. If everybody agrees about everything. Yeah. I it's yeah. I, I don't, don't get me wrong. Like I paid, I paid the ticket. I'm taking the ride. But unlike some of those folks who I got 10 minutes in and I turned it off or I got 20 minutes in and I turned it off. Fuck those people. Like you take the whole ride. Then you speak to the ride. Like <laughs> I say that all the time again in like our discourse for wrestling and stuff, like where people are like, uh, this was a terrible decision in this story. And like a lot of times, one of the things I always say is like, it just you're, you haven't even seen the story yet. You don't right. even know what's happening. Like right. you, you know, you, yeah, you may hate that this person did this thing, but is there more to that? Now, at the end of it, if it never makes sense, then you get to say all that. But I always have yeah. a problem with that. Like that, I, and I get, I think that's why Justin's that way, you know, about like not watching the whole thing. I mean, if you don't like it at the end of the story, then okay. <laughs> then, you know, yeah. you at least, you at least know the story. You saw what happened. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, I approached it. 
I think I approached it from a from a bad angle of assuming, you know, just assuming he would negotiate with Andy Warhol or just assuming that they had a theater department and he could get the kids. But yeah, it's it's I do. I am enjoying the discussion and I am enjoying the overall ride because like I hadn't really seen a lot of John Waters stuff. Now I have or am about to. Or in the, that's the in that's the, the part that I start to appreciate. Well, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, but you don't. I I, I would say it's safe to say that I like this not a genre, but this type of movie a little bit more than you like. It's low budget exploitation, more more rough around the edges kind of thing. I don't I don't think I have an issue with low budget indie films. I there's plenty of low budget indie films. I he did really like enjoy. Crippled Masters. <laughs> hey, Iro- there we go. But that's liking something ironically is different than <laughs> liking something, you know. Listen, I, I'm going to stick to my guns on Crippled Masters, but that's a different discussion. Anyway, uh, I, I think there are a lot of a, a lot of low budget indie films that are rough around the edges that I do enjoy. There are it is probably significantly less than yours. And and yeah, this is kind of the exploitation genre. Although, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is ex- exploitation, but it's kind of it's a, it's a, it's in such a weird area and delivered so oddly. See, I think that's times. what I like about it, it, though. I like that okay. John Waters has a specific like you cannot mistake his movies for anyone else's. Like he has a very specific way of, of telling his stories. Uh, and yes, it is, it is in its own, like you said, it is in its own genre almost, or its own category. By ca- itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which to me, that's high praise because not a lot of filmmakers can say that. I mean, you can say that's that an auteur thing. Yeah. You could say it about, uh, you know, you could say something is Tarantino-esque or Gilliam-esque or David or Lynchian or, but you could say the very same thing about John Waters. Uh, he has a very specific yeah. vision and yeah. he, he has this thing where to, to me, what one thing that makes John Waters work as important as it is. And the reason that people are still talking about it 50 years later, quite honestly, is because he is, he has this willingness to skewer the status quo. This is art to me at, at its most confrontational what he's doing with female trouble. And yet he still manages to make it very entertaining. Like, I think female trouble is, is hilarious. I think the dialogue is so funny. Um, I think it is clever. Uh, I think once people, I think some people have a hard time looking past that surface level of kind of like the kind of gross, gross out aspects of it. And don't Mm. realize just how funny his script is and how biting his satire is. Uh, Because it, I mean, this movie like I, I mentioned that the if you're there was oxygen in your balls uh, line earlier, that's one of the better. Oh yeah, I mean that's one of many many great quotable uh, lines in this film. Like uh, yeah. what is Edie's? She says uh, the the world of the heterosexual is a sick sick and boring life. Like that's fucking funny. <laughs> like that is a funny line, and this yeah. movie is filled yeah. with lines like that. But it, it's Divine who gets the most kind of scenery to chew on here. And I, yeah. I think that this is, I think this is the definitive divine performance. Like this is more so than pink flamingos, even though the image of, of divine and pink flamingos is the most iconic. Like this is the one that really showcases how 
good she is or how, how good divine is as as an act as a comedic actress or actor uh i think divine is on another level here i mean he is going like all out absolutely going all out on this performance uh it's in his essay in the um or the the criterion collection release for this the guy who wrote it, his name's ed halter he says that uh he has this great line in there he says that female trouble is undeniably a divine movie in the same way one might speak of a betty davis movie or a james mansfield movie like it's not just yes it's a john waters movie but this is also a divine movie and john waters wrote it that way i mean he th this movie is structured in a way to best showcase divine's talent she gets to play everything from a bratty teenager to a a mass murderer on death row i mean it's it yep. is like a star making performance quite honestly uh mm -hmm. and it's it's part of what makes this movie so much fun to watch is just watching divine like go off especially in that last the, the the trampoline scene and in the scene backstage where she kills Taffy prior to going on the trampoline. Like she yeah. is, she is giving 110%. <laughs> There's this weird thing when you like start trying to, to accomplish something. And you know, I'm sure you guys have seen it in different places, but like, if you, if you, you know, people talk about getting your 10,000 hours in and doing a thing and you get become an expert. Of it. But part of that is like failure. Part of that is like failing at a thing a bunch of different times until yep. you start to learn. And that's like the, the not to get like, I don't know, uh, online uh, educator or uh, philosophical about it. But <laughs> but by uh, getting real my Gary Vee about it over there. Yeah, getting real Gary Vee about it. Exactly. Uh but, but I will say it's like, I almost like, as we're talking about it, I almost am like thinking back on it and thinking, man, at first they're like, just being rebels. Like they're just fucking around because like, we're different and we're doing our own thing, you know, that kind of thing. Now, maybe John Waters, I could believe John Waters the whole time was like, I'm getting somewhere with this. This is oh, what yeah. I want to do. This is my art. And, uh, but everybody else in the dreamlanders, especially, I feel like are like, uh, we're rebels. And then by the Pete Flamingos, they get to this point of like, whatever, we're still having fun. We fucking, that's cool. Like, let's do another thing. Blah, blah, blah. It almost feels like in this movie, everybody's like, I believe that this is happening. Maybe after yeah. the success of Pete Flamingos, they were like, is there, so is there something else happening? Yeah. Here? Are we doing more like, than just fucking around? Uh, you know yeah it, it feels like here they're like they're bought in yeah. they're like this is this is real yeah. like we're making a fucking movie and we're really going for it mm -hmm. now especially divide yeah it feels like divide is like i am on the cusp of greatness and so like this is this is me like going all in on something yeah and she does i mean she gives it her all i mean it is it is a pretty incredible performance in my opinion she is she is fun fun to watch in this all right so i guess it's about the point in the show where it's time to do a little further viewing and man this is the hardest further viewing this whole series i think yeah. it's just john yeah. waters's movies are so singular that it's it's really hard to like try to come up with something that you could pair with it that is not just another john waters movie you know well a lot of these guys it feels like you're even like if you were talking about uh a lot of a lot of directors you i don't know maybe we'll fight maybe i'll educate myself more and feel differently but that you feel like you can even see influences later 
Yeah. That you're like, this person's ripping off this person. You know, like we're, we're talking about, I don't, and it, he's my go to because I love him, but John Carpenter, you know, there's going to be a million movies you could say, like, sure. Oh, you should totally watch this. This person's influenced by Carpenter, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. John Waters to me feels like somebody that's like hard to get a handle on for anybody, even if they're influenced by John Waters, it never feels quite like John Waters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's true. There are, there are definitely filmmakers who are influenced by John Waters and a couple of them, a couple of movies that I thought of for further viewing are in that, in that realm of people who were clearly influenced by John Waters. Uh, The one that I ended up going with is definitely not, but I'll, I'll explain my choice here in a bit, but I wanted to hear y'all's choices first. All right. Uh, so I'm gonna, uh, I've got one that I picked definitely that I thought of from the very start of this movie and the times that I watched it through, uh, that I always thought of that I think has nothing to do with John Waters either, but (laughs) it's what I thought of. Uh, but uh, first I'm going to give you four movies that I definitely heard John Waters reference more than once that he was thinking of during this movie. Mm -hmm. And I have seen zero of these movies, (laughs) but I'm going to tell you them because it's from him. It's from from him. These are the movies he says he was thinking of. Uh, The first one is a movie from 1961. It's called Susan Slade. Uh, It's a uh, American Technicolor drama film directed by Delbert Davies and starring Troy Donahue, Connie Stevens, Dorothy McGuire, and Lloyd Nolan, based upon the 1961 novel The Sin of Susan Slade by Doris Hume, concerns a well-to-do teenage girl who secretly has a baby out of wedlock. Mm, Okay, I can see the comparison uh, there then. Yeah, I think that he took the melodrama idea. When people talk about the melodrama, he'll bring that movie up a lot right that right he was thinking of uh another movie from 1958 that he references is called i want to live a biographical film noir directed by robert wise and starring susan hayward simon oakland and virginia vincent and theodore bickle it follows the life of barbara graham a prostitute and habitual criminal who is convicted of murder and faces capital punishment okay yeah that makes sense easy enough 1968 boom oh, elizabeth taylor joseph yeah, Lucy, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Cole Coward. It was adapted by a, from a Tennessee Williams, or it was adapted by Tennessee Williams from his own play, The Milk Trade Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. And finally, 1968's Vixen. Russ American Meyer. Film. Yeah, directed by Russ Meyer and starring Erica Gavin. It's the first film to be given an X rating for its sex scenes. Nice. It was a breakthrough success for Meyer. The film was developed from a script by Meyer and Anthony James Ryan. It, yeah. Um, if we were to ever do a Russ Meyer series, I think Vixen is the, the film we would start with. He's got too many to cover all of them. Uh, but unfortunately, Russ Meyer's stuff is very hard to find streaming or otherwise. So that, mm. that'll have to wait till, till the, something happens with the rights to those movies. Uh, but the one I thought about the most that I know I've seen multiple times that I couldn't help but make the comparison for is Natural Born Killers. I actually thought I, about that one while I we thought were, about that one. I just thought about it while we were recording this episode. Like it came to mind yeah. while we were recording this episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I, every the like watching this movie, I kept thinking of that one. Yeah, and, it's very uh, much and, that same satire about like the way that Americans treat. 
criminal like famous criminals you know like yeah. the, the, and these mickey and mallory are getting famous or they're trying they're trying to get famous by killing people <laughs> that's what they're doing yeah uh, that's yeah. their whole goal so yeah I, very very good comparison i think how about you todd further viewing that i've done for the last two have have been from a very particular angle i'm kind of returning to uh how i normally choose further viewing where fi- i'm finding elements uh, that kind of mirror, at least to some degree, like what's going on in the narrative of this film. So I kind of settled on two, uh, both from the 80s. Uh, first up, uh, 1986, written and directed by the male lead actor, who at 23 years old was the youngest to write, direct, and act in a major motion picture. Demi Moore and Tom Skerritt co-star with a score by Danny Elfman. Tom Skerritt. 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 Any any guesses? Not a clue. Not a fucking clue. Uh, It's it's called Wisdom. And it's basically uh, Emilio Estevez is the guy. This is blowing my mind because I have no idea what the fuck this movie is. I've never heard of this. And I love Tom Skerritt. And I know who Demi Moore is. And I swear to God, I've never heard of this. Never heard of this movie. It's basically a modern body and Clyde Um, uh, Emilio Estevez, Demi Moore. They're this couple and they travel around the country robbing banks uh, to help. Uh, So if you pull it up on IMDb, it says unable to find work after a past felony graduate, John wisdom, Emilio Estevez and his girlfriend, Demi Moore embark on a cross country bank robbing spree in order to aid American farmers. But I remember seeing this and thinking, and at some point along the way, they're robbing a bank and people are like trying to shake their hands and, and like, because they're famous and mm-hmm. they're trying to do this thing as they travel around the country. And of course it's all over the news and yada, yada, yada. You know, so, you have those moments, like I, I I'm looking at this on IMDb as you're saying this and I see the movie poster and I'm like, this is sparking a thing from my childhood or something (laughs) like i do remember this this is weird there's something like a a lost memory firing up (laughs) yes yes this is one of those ones where i like i caught it and was just kind of i was hooked in and yeah yeah this is directed and written by emilio estevez i've never heard of this movie (laughs) <laughs> it's it's i think we need to do a cinema shock movie night we need to get the girls because i think the girls would be into this as well it's it's, it's i think a this fun... gets it added to roulette at least <laughs> oh yeah yeah absolutely so my other one um so anyways we're talking about crime you know and being in the public eye that's where wisdom comes in so the other side i feel like divine's character don davenport at one point she rallies against and at some point kind of becomes the thing that she hates. Like we see her rallying against her parents, but then when she has Taffy, she's saying sort of a twisted version of a lot of the same things her parents said to her. And it made me think of that whole notion of becoming the thing that we, that we hate. So my second choice, and it's, this is a weird one. So just stick with me. I'll get there. I wouldn't settle for any less for me, Todd. <laughs> From 1982, based on the 1979 album, written by a member of the band, directed by Alan Parker, Bob Geldof plays the title role. Pink Floyd. 
Yep, Floyd <laughs> the Wall. That that whole thing is him sort of rallying against uh, the things that he uh, kind of endured in his childhood, but he ends up becoming the thing that he hates. So I think if you kind of took, you know, the character of Pink and the character of John Wisdom and kind of meshed them together and gave it, you know, really garish hair and makeup, it might be, it might be female trouble. <laughs> I think all of these further viewings have to be added to roulette, just for the record. Uh, the only thing I think of when I think of the wall, for some reason, uh, is that guy who smokes the cigarette where the ash is like a foot long. Like he smokes it all the way to the filter and yep. the ash is still the length of the cigarette. When yep. I had that short period of smoking in my life, I uh-huh. tried that so many times. It never worked. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, and, and also admittedly, part of the reason I do these is because I want Kurt when he's putting together his spreadsheet to just be typing and going, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so mine, I, I said I had a couple that came to mind just because I was trying to think of other movies that like were clearly influenced by John Waters, but neither one of the first couple I came up with, like they definitely are influenced by John Waters, but have no real connection to this film. Uh, and those mm. were uh, what I, one I know you've seen, Gary, called The Greasy Strangler. <laughs> Which, <laughs> which, bullshit <laughs> artist uh which i guess you could i guess would fit but the other one i thought of and i actually watched it this morning um it's called but i'm a cheerleader uh starring Le- natasha leon and Clea duvall i don't know if you guys have seen it oh, yeah. but uh directed by jamie babbitt I, I, I don't i don't know if we've had to cross this bridge on the especially on the most recent version of the show but my wife is very well aware of this and constantly references I am a, I have a, there may not be an actress. No, there, okay, yeah, I'm attracted to a lot of actresses, but Clea Duvall, I love her so well, much. Well, I guess I got news for you about Clea Duvall. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I know. Doesn't matter. I think she's, she's the weirdest, most attractive person to me. I don't know. I love Clea uh, Duvall. Well, she, so this movie, uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, it's very clearly influenced by John Waters, just in the set design and everything. It's very kitsch. Mink stole plays uh, Natasha Leon, the main character, Mink Stoll plays the mother in it. So uh, they're, they obviously were making a nod to John Waters. It's basically about this girl who she's in, she is, her parents are like, uh, like Chris, they're very Christian. She's very Christian. She's a cheerleader uh, at her high school and she gets sent to a conversion therapy camp because her parents and friends suspect that she is a lesbian, which she is. Uh, she just hasn't admitted it to herself yet, but it's very campy and very, uh, it's very much a, like a satire uh, to tell you how much of a satire it is. The, the, the guy who is kind of their coach at the conversion camp, who is supposed to like help them turn back straight is played by mm. RuPaul Charles. <laughs> so, oh, <okay. laughs> so uh it's really funny it's a great movie but it feels a little more like maybe it would pair better with a later john waters movie like a crybaby or serial mom like that era uh john waters mm. so the one that i ended up landing on it's actually a movie that doesn't on the surface level feel like a john waters movie at all but it really feels thematically similar to what female trouble is doing uh it's a movie from 2020 uh, that stars Joe Keery from Stranger Things called Spree. And it's basically about this oh, guy yeah. who he's a rideshare driver. He's he's like live streaming and he's doing these increasingly 
insane and criminal things on his live stream, hoping to go viral. So very much like the, a similar trajectory, although this is set over the course of one night, if I remember right, uh, mm. where he's just in doing whatever it takes to get famous for that 15 minutes of fame. So that kind of like, for some reason earlier today, that, that one just popped in my head and it just clicked where it's like, yeah, like he's doing the 2020s version of trying to get famous like Don Davenport was trying to do in 1974. You know, but what he's doing it by, of course, live streaming on TikTok or Instagram or whatever. So that's where. I, also, Spree's just a really fun movie. I think I, I I really enjoyed that movie. So that's my official. It is a fun pick. movie, and I did. Yeah, that's a that's a really good pick. I'm still I'm still hung up on uh, Clay Duvall. I'm still <laughs> thinking about her. We yeah. should watch and that. I've seen this movie you're talking about, and I didn't appreciate the fact that Mink Stoll was in there. That's so weird to me because they're. I feel like they're both two very weird crushes I have now. And yeah, Mink. They were Mink in a movie Stoll together. and Bud Court play Natasha Leone's parents in the movie. It's oh, it, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fun movie. It really is. It's got the kid that played Rufio is in it. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, like. That's from that late 90s period of yeah. Clea Duvall. Mm-hmm. Like after I saw her in the faculty. This would have been right after love. the faculty, then, probably. Like, yeah. Yeah. And uh she ends up going on to do like Ghost of Mars mm-hmm. with uh John Carpenter. So she just like she's she's ticking all the right boxes still. <laughs> like I, I watched a movie on Roku with on the Roku channel the other day with her just because she was in it and it was about her being like sitting in like one of those like uh ranger boxes and getting haunted by ghosts like in the ranger in the national forest yeah, yeah. or something was it any good yeah, yeah. Ghost coming in. no <laughs> i mean <laughs> but she was in it <laughs> anyway this is a good way to introduce everybody to my new podcast co- called i love clea and uh <laughs> you gotta work on that title we can do better than that yeah we'll workshop it we'll workshop it gary doing it all for duval <laughs> <laughs> all, all for Duval. That's the name of your podcast. Oh boy! <laughs> it's gonna. Every episode is just a different Clea Duval movie. I like it. I mean, somebody I will listen now, to it. She started in the early '90s, so there's enough. Yeah, she's yeah. directing now. Yeah, you so. got plenty. Also, by the way, uh, Natasha Leal. You, you mentioned her. They're they're in Poker Face together, at least in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Which is that just came out. It's great. That's a great show. Uh, Clay Duvall also, I think, does she pop up in Russian Doll? Maybe not, but Jamie Babbitt, who directed But I'm a Cheerleader, directs some episodes of Russian Doll, I know. No, another Natasha oh. Leon movie. Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Let's uh, let's wrap this thing sorry, up. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, John Waters. So, after, uh, after Female Trouble, after it was released, you know, Divine ended up moving to New York. Uh, Divine, while in New York, would work on several off-Broadway shows, and he made his stage debut in a play called Women Behind Bars, where he played a lesbian prison matron. Uh, That play opened in April of 1976 and ran through the end of that year. Then it went on tour, national tour. Uh, But because of this play, Divine, for the first time ever, would not be available when Waters began shooting his next film. Uh, and we will talk a little bit more about what Divine was doing during this time, I think, on our next episode, because she has quite a quite a career outside of John Waters for a little while there. But, uh, you know, while the, the next script that John Waters wrote uh, did have a role in it 
and it written for divine, he would end up having to recast that lead role with another one of his dreamlanders. And we will talk about who that is and how that movie came to be in our very next episode, the fourth episode of this series, where we will explore the story behind desperate living. So if you want to watch along, you can't find it on Blu-ray, but it is streaming. I feel good about this episode, fellas. I feel like I just also found like new content for our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> be the new series that I do. <laughs> All for Duvall, so. it's exclusive to Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, fellas, I guess that's it for this episode. You guys want to tell yeah. our listeners where you can be found on the internet? I am at this is gary horn on instagram and twitter if you like wrestling i was this is pro wrestling at this is pro wrestling on youtube and at tipw show on social media i also work for the national wrestling alliance and you can access their links in their bio on instagram at nwa uh we're having our big 75th anniversary that's the diamond anniversary it's in st louis missouri august uh 26th and 27th i think it is uh that's coming up so you should check that out that's going to be available on pay-per-view but also you could go there if you happen to listen to this and you're in the st louis area or if you want to travel if you want to travel come (laughs) see me in st louis meet me in st louis as one might say there you go there you go uh, I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, the Computer Resume Podcast. In fact, as we are recording this, I have just completed interviews with character actors Elizabeth Dennehy from Next Generation, Vaughn Armstrong from Enterprise, and as well as Trek Comics Editor from IDW, Heather Antos. Uh, Computer Resume Podcast is available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the social medias at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. I am uh, Justin underscore Bishop on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and threads now, I guess. Um, hey. oh, <laughs> and Letterboxd. Uh, you can check out all the episodes to all of our shows uh, on our website, as well as links to our Discord and our merch at cinemashock.net. As always, share this episode with anyone that you might want to in any way that you know how. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Oh, Ernie, have another key for Christ's sakes. Where do you meet my little Johnny? You two are going to fall right in love. We didn't talk about Edith enough on this episode, considering her role here. I tried. I tried. I, I just love we, her. We, we did. We did mention her boobies and stuff. We did. Yeah. Oh, if you want to come to NWA 75 in St. Louis, I'll see how many people listen to this. Uh, the Smashing Pumpkins are going to be around. Also, the Insane Cloud Posse. Here. Oh, shit. Get the fuck out of here, Gary. <laughs> so that's not even released yet as we're recording this, but I just looked and it's not going to, it doesn't come out till like the 19th. So like the week before. So maybe we'll have announced that or not, <laughs> or uh, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> or we'll see who cares. And so, there you do go. you think, do you think any of the insane clown posse are Star Trek fans? No. 
I don't. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, you don't, I don't know that. Justin. I don't know that. You said, "Do I think that?" <laughs> That's true. And I think that the answer is no. <laughs> 